This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and on this week's hell. We are hosting an entire lineup of guests that were suggested by listeners because today we are having our third annual 20th anniversary party as well as listener appreciation party and art show all day today at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Well, at least until it opens and then until they close. Essentially, I don't know, the place opens at noon, but I'm going to get there around 3, so from 3 to 1 p.m., or 3 p.m., until the wee hours of tomorrow morning. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. So, we're hosting only listener-suggested guests during this week's show to show more listener appreciation, not only at the party, but here over the air as well. So let's see what kind of guest guests, listeners of This Is Hell want to hear on the show. Okay, first we're going to start by discussing how human activity is accelerating changes, uh, evolutionary changes, and we better start learning how to live with this new nature before it's too late. The militarized, corporatized sports industry is in stark contrast to black athletes' heritage of standing up to racism and injustice. Violence and catastrophe are the only two ways inequality has ever been successfully addressed, which sucks because I really want more equality. Government surveillance is everywhere, and it's growing faster and faster unless we do something about it. We'll have some kind of mass surveillance system that tracks each and every one of our every move. Wait! Too late, we've already got that system. Jeff Dorchin is back, and he'll be delivering a moment of truth, which I'll be telling you about in a moment. And I'll flash back to the very beginning of This Is Hell, as best as I can remember, during this week's special anniversary and listener appreciation party episode. Stay tuned to find out more about today's all-day party and all-night party as well. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week is award-winning ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of York, Chris D. Thomas, author of Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving, in an age of extinction. Chris argues that while extinctions are increasing and we need to address climate change and conserve the life we can, we also need to learn to live with nature. That is, to not impose our will upon nature and allow for the exploding biodiversity that's taking place globally due to human interaction with nature to evolve and become the nature of the future. Yeah, it's pretty deep stuff. Chris is a fellow of the Royal Society and has received the Scientific Medal of the Zoological Society of London, the President's Medal of the British Ecological Society, the Marsh Award for Conservation Biology, and the Marsh Award for Climate Change Research. In other words, Chris knows his stuff. We want to thank longtime listener Tom, who is a prolific guest suggester and was kind enough to donate the zero euro Karl Marx notes. We'll be raffling off tonight at 6, 8, and 10 p.m. You'll get nine chances to win a pair of Karl Marx zero euro notes. We're giving away 18 Karl Marx zero euro notes this evening, so make sure you drop by the party at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. We want to thank Tom for those zero euro notes and for his suggestion of Chris Thomas. Following our talk talk with Chris on the new nature human activity has created, we'll hear from Howard Bryant, author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. There is a heritage among black athletes of being the voice for those within the community that did not make it. Paul Robeson, Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Kurt Flood, 
Colin Kaepernick. They all faced a kind of McCarthyism, if not McCarthyism itself, that had devastating impacts on their sports careers. With the sports industry now militarized in our post-9-11 world, boasting nationalism several times during each and every game, it's no surprise that Kaepernick can't get a job. In this climate, I'm surprised they let anyone into any sporting event unless they're wearing a brown shirt. We'll get all sporty when we speak with Howard, who is a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the magazine and appears regularly on ESPN programming. Howard was suggested to us by listener Jack. Jack, like Tom, we will be sending you advertising stickers in the mail as we will now send free stickers to anyone whose guest suggestion actually gets on air. Alex has already confirmed a couple of get, uh, listener suggestions, suggested guests for next week's show, so keep sending in your suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. After our discussion with Howard Bryant on black athletes and racial justice activism in sports, we'll hear from historian Walter Scheidel, author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. The good news is there is a way we can get equality. In fact, it seems to be the only way throughout human history that has actually worked in clawing back a bit of equality from the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. We've ever had, we've never had any rollback against inequality except for in these two instances. The bad news is the only things that work are violence and catastrophe. Being that that's not a, such a great track record for humanity, we'll consider if it's possible that this time around in the deep inequality within which we exist today, which has been globalized, we can get out uh, this time in a very or at least more nonviolent way. We'll learn about leveling when we chat it up with Walter, who is the Dickinson Professor and the Humanities Professor of Classics and History and a Kennedy Grossman Fellow in Human Biology at Stanford University. And I told you Tom is a prolific guest suggester because Walter's yet another guest suggestion we received from Tom, who again donated those zero-euro Karl Marx notes that you can win at this evening's party that begins at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, and goes on into the wee hours of the morning. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell by speaking with journalist Sarus Faravar, author of Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Age of surveillance tech. You can you are being watched right now in ways that you cannot imagine or you may be, you don't know, but the technology is there. Your license plate number may just have been scanned on your or your phone may be snitching on you to the cops right now. You just don't know and the law has every right to get deep into what was once your privacy in our age of mass surveillance technology and it's growing increasingly intense we'll get freaked out about who's watching and why and what they're doing with all our information when we look back at the watchers with Sarus who is the senior business editor at Ars Technica this week Sarus posted several Ars Technica columns including why is infowars allowed on Facebook Sarus previously was the SciTech editor and host of Spectrum on Deutsche Welle English Germany's international broadcaster and no Tom did not suggest Sarus Don did and because you did Don just like Tom and Jack you will soon be receiving advertising stickers in the mail for getting your guest suggestion on the air. You can always get subvertising stickers at, you can, I'm sorry, you can also get subvertising stickers at today's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin returns to mourn the passing of a great life. So on this week's show, and keep in mind, these are all 
listener suggested guests. We're talking humans refusing to live with nature, industrialized sports is racist, equality can only happen after violence and catastrophe, and who's kidding who, we have no privacy. In other words, our listeners want to think about nature differently, realize how awful sports have become, be pessimistic about humanity, and finally notice that we're all being watched. Yep, that sounds about right for our listeners. Rightfully paranoid and pessimistic anti-authoritarians who are nature lovers. And I'll look back at the very first year of first few years of This Is Hell, describe what it was like in the pre-digital, pre-podcast days, the late 20th and early 21st centuries. That stuff, plus some rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Join us today, Saturday, July 21st for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show also featuring live music we'll be telling you who the artists are throughout this morning's show what we'll be raffling away who the musicians will be and all that kind of stuff that's today Saturday July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios 2251 West Devon beginning at 3pm and going all day and all night there's going to be food a raffle a whole lot more uh, let's see. You can find out more by going to facebook.com slash this is how radio and clicking on our event page. Come one, come all to the best party happening in a little India neighborhood bar today. Yes, I can say that with great confidence as the other three bars are not having parties. That's This Is Hell's third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show today, Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, my wife just sent me a text message that my kid just ate a bunch of uh, a desitin, which is a diaper rash. Um, cream. Should I just text back the obvious joke that it goes in the other end? Or, uh, <laughs> and what's going? Ha- is that too hack? Uh, that is too hack. Let us move on to Leo quickly. <laughs> Leo, what's new by you, sir? Uh, uh, nothing. There's nothing you can follow up with your <laughs> eating desitin. Well, I think you should maybe see if that's toxic. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was yeah, thinking too. Was, maybe a little Heimlich. Maybe yeah. yeah. This is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment streaming live online at our website thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place thisishell.com now airing an abbreviated one hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow Idaho on Radio Free Moscow and on Lumpen Radio in Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure, I think. Yes, this week's hangover cure is drinking the Mediterranean diet. In an article at GQ.com by Natalie Compton headlined, Five Fail-Safe Hangover Cures for Your Summer Blues, Compton quotes Dushan Zarich, the co-founder of a West Hollywood restaurant called Employees Only LA. Hmm. Zarich suggests starting his hangover starting his hangover cure before drinking begins zarch says is a good idea to drink one ounce of lemon juice and one ounce of cold pressed virgin olive oil (laughs) mixed with cinnamon before you go out to drink lemon juice is alkalizing it will balance the acidity that alcohol wait lemon juice is 
alkalizing? I thought lemon juice was acidic. I know, dude. I don't know. And it will balance the acidity that alcohol GQ, brings into your system. It will help your liver to cleanse better and faster. Olive oil will line your stomach and let the alcohol absorb into your system at a lower rate. Um, wouldn't that also mean that the lemon juice is absorbing yeah, into your system? <laughs> dude, there's so much confusing uh, about this. Compton also said Zarich shared this deep thought on drinking. <laughs> Sadly, in America, we believe that we have our ca- we can have our cake and eat it too. And I always try to point out the futility in that line of thought. <laughs> what, the deep- <laughs> what the hell? Uh, you got GQ. You guys need to do better. Uh, that makes this week's hangover cure: drinking the Mediterranean diet of lemon juice, olive oil, and cinnamon before you go out drinking. And you can use that hangover cure this evening before you go out drinking and. Joining us at tonight's party at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. It's our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show beginning at 3 p.m. and going all night. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong, This Is Hell, and Prove Us Wrong via email at chuck at com or send us a message at Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. All day today. We're celebrating 22 years of broadcasting This Is Hell. We've gone through a lot of changes since we began airing here on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. Our first year, you were we were just a uh, substitute show filling in for public affairs and community service programming. I got on NUR because they were desperate for community service content. I used a fake broadcasterly voice on the phone to meet a student that was filling in as the summer weekend producer. She asked me if I knew how to run the board, which looked like the first one I used when I was like 15. So I pretended I did, and she said I had a show. When the show started, I continued to pretend I knew how to run the board, even while on air. And those production mistakes show up a lot in those early tapes. Uh, During the earliest shows, I played recorded but completely unedited interviews with people on the street, specifically people on the street outside the 1996 Democratic National Convention that was taking place that summer here in Chicago at the United Center. I remember going to the UC with the, uh, WNUR's bulky Marantz cassette recorder, which was bigger than the biggest lot laptop they make today, and being stunned, mic in hand, at the first thing I saw, a free speech zone, which was literally a cage of approximately 20-foot-tall fences where inside protesters would be corralled and controlled by police, police who surrounded citizens exercising their free speech rights. I had no idea that our rights had been limited to that extent until I arrived at the convention. Inside the cage, it was like a trade show with tables set up along the edge featuring authorized organizations and their literature. Standing a short distance behind every table was a cop in riot gear. And I have a rule. When the cops and the activists are on the same side of the table, I want nothing to do with those activists' causes. So I left the government-sanctioned cage because that's where the media would go. And this is hell, not the media, right? Uh, Except the regular media wasn't even at the government-sanctioned protest area. So I went a block or two away where you were apparently far enough from the convention that police allowed unorganized and uncertified protests to take place. The best interview I got was with a person who wanted to decriminalize, as in weed. Uh, he told me he had an epiphany and was dedicating his life to making certain that smoking or growing pot would no longer be a crime. He stressed decriminalization because he believed legalizing it would only make it a corporate commodity and would likely not allow anyone 
and to simply grow their own. But it was the epiphany he shared that was spectacular. He told me that he had gotten so high one day, he had a vision of a baby climbing a mountain, and as it reached the peak, the baby's head turned 180 degrees and told him to devote every waking second of his life to the decriminalization of marijuana. Following the baby head-spinning legalize it uh, comment, I continued my one-man coverage of the Democratic National Convention, the next show, by airing a particularly nationalist speech that had been given at the convention by Vice President Al Gore's then-wife, Tipper. I wasn't certain if I would actually play the tape because the speech on it was uh, so awful. Its own content was just awful. But I was living in the then-German-American neighborhood, Lincoln Square, and stumbled across an open-air German folk music concert. You know, the kind of music you hear on the History Channel when they're uh, airing a show on Hitler. In other words, the music you always hear on the History Channel. While the music may not be fascist, it certainly has been given that connotation by the History Channel. So I aired the Tipper Gore uber-nationalist speech with the creepy live German folk music playing in the background, giving it this fascistic tone that it really deserved. The show was on again, off again, and when we were on, we would try all sorts of things, like having a live piano player on the show during while I was reading the news, which I'll get to in a bit. The next year, when we were no longer merely a show filling in for gaps in programming, but an actual weekly broadcast, we further embraced our not-the-media theme. First, we aired from a clamming trawler off the coast of Popham Beach, Maine, a location I selected immediately after spending a week there on vacation. We would play sound effects of crashing waves and seagulls in the background as I would give that uh, week's news from Popham Beach, including high and low tide times. And more importantly, we would play static in the background, to give the show an ambiance of being aired from far away. The engineer and faculty advisor at WNUR hated the fact that we were playing static on the radio. It went against everything you were supposed to do on the radio, but this is hell again is not the media. After we become became bored with that idea, we started doing the show in bowling alleys. Well, not really a bowling alley, but we would play bowling alley sound effects in the background, which was like likely very distracting to the listening audience and to our guests. We even had guests ask, are you in a bowling alley? While the sound effects were playing. And every time I would just say, no, why would you say that? We even pretended to do the show from the Onion's world headquarters while The Onion was still somewhere in Wisconsin before they moved to Chicago and hit it big. The Onion writer who was in studio was, again, very confused by the newsroom sound effects until I explained how it was, uh, you know, of... It was really nice of him to invite us to the Onion's offices and how beautiful the mahogany-paneled walls looked. He finally figured it out. After we went through that phase, we decided to bring back the piano player. I'd done some shows with uh, him when we were subbing, and the piano player brought along an accordionist. When I would read news, they would immediately play some appropriate or inappropriate music that would go along with that news. For instance, if I was reading something about Israel, they would burst into Hava Nagila. Now, this was not due to any request or suggestion on my own. They would just launch into some music, often catching me by surprise. The pianist, by the way, is now a cantor and the accordion player is an educator and lobbyist. The accordionist turned lobbyist, but still an accordionist. 
had been the host of a radio show called Hell Ride on a Minneapolis radio station, and a regular guest on his show was the late, great Wesley Willis, the outsider artist and musician. In fact, the tagline at the end of our show to this day is still a tagline Wesley read on air when he appeared on This Is Hell. But he had written that tagline for the accordionist's show in Minnesota. That's why he says Hell Ride. During that time, the accordionist and piano player ended up touring and living with Wesley. Wesley even wrote and recorded a song about the accordionist that included the line, I love Dan Butler. That's the accordionist's name. I love Dan Butler more than Reese's Pieces. And Wesley loved Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces. Pieces. Reese's Pieces. So that was really saying something. Eventually, we featured Wesley during an entire episode where he performed several songs. For Wesley, if a song was over two minutes in length, it was a failure, as he believed all great pop songs were two minutes or shorter. When he would finish a song, like his piece about Andrew Cunanan, the serial killer who had just killed Giovanni Versace and who Wesley hated, Wesley would turn to Dan, the accordionist, and say, How long was the song? Dan would always answer with a time only a few seconds short of two minutes. I figured Dan was just being polite, but he would later explain that Wesley had an incredible knack for knowing when a song was about to reach the dreaded two-minute mark and stop. At the time, we would record on Saturday mornings, and the show was played back uncut on Sunday mornings for two hours from 6 in the morning until 8 a.m. when we were followed by the gospel show, which caused me to end every episode of This Is Hell from hell to heaven in only a few minutes, and the gospel show loved it. We finally got what would be our now regular time slot live on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. in January 1999 after being on air here at WNUR for two and a half years. When we did, I was called down to the faculty advisor's office to defend the content of the show as we were and still are fulfilling the FCC-mandated public service requirement for the station. The advisor told me it was mandatory that we had one long-form interview per, per hour and that one interview had to run at least 11 minutes in length. He clearly had not listened to the show, so I explained how we already had at least one interview of 20 minutes and a correspondent report of a minimum of 10 minutes. That correspondent was Jeff Dorchin, who still does the moment of truth on This Is Hell to this day, and who we stole from This this American Life, kinda. Jeff had been a regular contributor on Ider Glass's show, and was still while he was on our show, but eventually... He was only heard here on This Is Hell. In 2000, we became the first U.S. media to interview investigative reporter Greg Palace. Greg was the one who revealed the 57,000 names Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris vetted from the voting rolls in Bush v. Gore. And Greg was the only one who identified the rioters outside of vote counting stations in Florida as Washington, D.C. Republican aides and operatives. By 2001, we started what would be called podcasting by offering the show cut up into four one-hour segments in what was then the downloadable real audio format. No, it wasn't called podcasting yet, but that's what we were doing essentially in our first episode available in this way featured the first live interview anywhere with Noam Chomsky after 9-11. And we've not only been broadcasting over the air in Chicago ever since, but we've also been streaming and uh, posting our recorded shows for the entire world. And we do have listeners from all over the world. Whenever we send out questions from Hell Prizes, I'm always floored by how they rarely go to people within WNUR's actual broadcast area. Now, a lot more things have happened along the way. An alderman threatened to sue us, a member of British Parliament implied he was going to sue us. I got great insider information long before anyone and Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich being forced out of office, and I predicted his downfall accurately on air before anyone was discussing it. I had incredible insider information on the 2016 Olympics going to... 
Chicago, so that wasn't all that great. Let's see, I got shingles. Years later, two other producers got shingles. A producer from Mark Maron's radio show became a producer on our show. Another producer became an author and renowned expert on Iran. Another is now an MD. A correspondent went to Cambodian prison. Another yelled at Oprah and Madeleine Albright. Still another was hated by Samantha B. Oh, and a contributor made a ton of money on the financial crisis. One of Jeff's moments of truth sent Billy Joel into rehab, and some student disappeared, and in his room all they found was a jar of urine labeled This Is Hell. This Is Hell was named Best Radio Show, Best Morning Show, and I was named Best Radio Host and Best Journalist several times in the Chicago Reader's Best of Chicago poll, which really pissed off a very famous local DJ. In fact, the Reader changed their criteria several times so local independent artists like us couldn't win their poll. I had several interviews with radio stations that went horribly wrong. I also won a, uh, also almost won a talent competition run by NPR when I was still in the running. I was quoted by a trade magazine saying my listeners told me they didn't trust NPR because of the network's relationship with groups like the American Petroleum Institute. I got a talking to by the person in charge of national programming at NPR. It's what you'd expect, I guess, from the host of a radio show that says this is not the media, this is hell, and we are not the media by doing in-depth interviews with people who are not news media celebrities in the highest levels of the economic and political and entertainment establishment. We invite perspectives that are purposely ignored by the mainstream corporate, commercial, and public radio while never taking a dime in advertising money, never becoming part of the clique of media that exists even within what is called independent or alternative media. Media, so we can make certain that we have no conflicts of interest when critiquing any media and not being beholden to anyone or anything. Yes, talking to those outside the celebrity cast, not networking within the media, discussing subjects nobody wants to discuss with people whose perspectives are challenging our worldview. I know it's a horrible business model. Who wants to have their grip on the world around them screwed with for four hours every week? Is it any wonder our economic system doesn't reward a radio show dedicated to manufacturing dissent? Much of that criticism directed against the very economic system within which the show exists. I'm just trying to do the right thing, but it ends up that doing the right thing, or what I think is the right thing in the world we live in today, is often punished as if it's the wrong thing, while doing the wrong thing is rewarded. Remember, people are getting rich from destroying the planet and spreading hate and violence. Well, what did I expect? This is hell. And we want all of you to celebrate 22 years of trying to do the right thing today, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's today, Saturday, July 21st, at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. And until whenever, this week's question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on the twenty on the show 22 years from now? What are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? All replies are going to be read on the air. Our favorite wins the new tin This Is Hell coffee cup, which will also be available at the party. And who knows, maybe you can win one during this evening's raffle. Again, the question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now coming up on this week's this is how human human activity is accelerating changes evolutionary changes our militarized corporatized sports industry violence and catastrophe are the only two ways inequality can be successfully addressed government surveillance is everywhere and it's growing faster and faster and unless we do something about it we'll have a mass surveillance system that tracks our every move wait too late 
We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a Moment of Truth. Jeff Dorchin returns to mourn the passing of a great life. Plus, rotten history, listener feedback, all sorts of stuff coming up on this week's episode of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Yes, climate change is happening. Yes, it is devastating. Yes, it desperately needs to be addressed. And life needs to be conserved when it can be. But this may not be the sixth extinction after all. It's still going to be bad. But if we learn to live with nature, maybe more of us can get out of this alive. Here to help us rethink our relationship with nature award-winning ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of York, Chris D. Thomas, author of Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. Welcome to This is Hell, Chris. Good morning, Chuck. Sorry about being a little bit late there. We're running a little bit behind on time because we're promoting this week's party. You describe the major agricultural area in northeast England, the Vale of York, as being a landscape of ecological despair. But then you add, the denuded Vale is full of species and many are world travelers. To what extent has climate change led to a change in the ecological makeup of the Vale, or the world for that matter, for one, from one of historic species, if you will, of traditional flora and fauna, and replace it with what are often negatively labeled as invasive species? Is the nature that is thriving in the age of extinction an invasive nature? Well, it, it is, but it's not necessarily always harmful to us. So uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm sitting in, my, uh, sitting in a room at the moment, and I'm looking out in the garden, and I just wandered down the garden 20 minutes ago, and there I saw something called a small skipper butterfly and a, and a gatekeeper butterfly and a ringlet butterfly uh, and actually half a dozen others. Now, those three species that I just mentioned used not to live in this region at all as recently as 30, 40 years ago. And as the climate has warmed um, and uh, we get more periodic droughts as well, I'm looking at a completely brown yard in front of me rather than a pristine British lawn. Um, And these three species of butterfly that I just mentioned have spread northwards by, you know, 30, 40, 50, even some of them by 100 miles or more over the last few decades. So as the climate has warmed, sure, it gets bad for some species in some parts of the world, and that's really problematic, as you said, just said, really need to um, minimize the amount of climate change that takes place to stop species becoming endangered. But on the other hand, it also means that some places that weren't suitable for species previously become suitable and they're starting to move in. And it's not just climate change. The fields, uh, if you hear a bit of rumbling in the background, it's probably the tractors going up and down the surrounding fields. But in the edges of the fields there are poppies. And poppies, everybody likes poppies in Britain, pretty red flowers, around, the, and everyone's worried that there aren't as many poppies as there used to be. But they were a weed that came in with the Romans, and we wouldn't have poppies in Britain if it wasn't for these historical changes to the world. So what you have to think of is when we change the planet, there are losers. And I, like everybody else, or not everybody else, but like lots of people, are really concerned about those losers and what we can do for them. But on the other hand, 
also bunches of species that are available to move into the new kinds of environment that we create. And so many, many species are being successful, just as there are also losers. Aren't these new species, to what degree are these new species, or do these new species immediately, at least in the short run, have a negative impact on the environment as a whole? Does it take, you know, thousands of years, hundreds, thousands of years to figure out or to actually make it so they are no longer uh, of detriment to the ecological makeup in general? So, um, the difficulty is what is damaging? Because um, some of them become common quite quickly, and so they generate some ecological changes. But all the species that we had before and were familiar with, many of them were common as well, and had generated in their time over the previous thousand years, had also generated change. So what's harmful is, as much as anything, a human state of mind. There is no other perspective that we can think about harm in any ultimate way, other than through the eyes of a human. Now, we're probably all in agreement that a new kind of mosquito arriving that's a vector for a disease that either we or our livestock get. Okay, we all agree, hate them, Uh, let's try and stop this. Okay, so then we get um, more difficult cases, so something like the rhododendron in Britain, which is, um, I don't know how, how familiar uh, you guys are with rhododendrons. There's certainly lots of rhododendrons in the States. Um, and beautifully flowered plant. But it comes from uh, the southern Mediterranean, and it's become wide, very widespread and abundant across many hillsides in Britain. And, of course, because there's lots of rhododendrons now, people say, is an invasive species, and in fact, it turns out that Britain spends more time, trying, money, and effort trying to exterminate rhododendrons than pretty much any other invasive species. But lots of people, people who don't know it's invasive and should we should regard it as a bad thing, think it's absolutely staggeringly beautiful. It's complete hillsides covered in purple. So, um, so a lot of the um, perception of what is harmful is in our minds. And if we all tell ourselves that change automatically corresponds to harm, then there's lots of harmful things out there. But if we accept that all of the ecological and evolutionary processes on the planet are processes of dynamic change, then many of the things that are changed can be regarded rather than a problem as nature responding to, and in some senses, healing itself from the environmental change that we've been generating. So, because I want to make sure I get this out of the way at the beginning, what would you say to a climate change skeptic or even a denialist who argues that your work shows that the climate is climate changing and human activity is not as bad as everyone thinks it will be, and we can simply keep going forward, burning fossil fuels at a rate that will exceed over only the next 80 years all the fossil fuels we've burned from today back to the beginning of industrialization in the late 1700s. What would you say to someone who argues that your work shows that climate change will not be as bad for us as we think it will be? So um, I would say that um, you need to look and think about the whole picture. Um, 
and that climate change and the speed of climate change we're experiencing at the moment is clearly right at the top of the list that humans need to get a handle and try and stop. The reason for that is, although there are lots of species that are uh, becoming successful in the new world, there's a whole bunch of species um, uh, that are restricted to small geographic areas of the world. So species of frog, for example, that live in the mountains of Costa Rica, where nowhere to go, and they're getting, and they're moving uphill. We have strong evidence from right around the world that species are moving their distributions closer to the North Pole, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, to higher elevations where it's a bit cooler in both um, the temperate zone and also in the tropics. Now, these things that are the very rare species in the world that are, say, restricted to a single mountain range, they can go up and up for a while, but eventually they run out of space. Um, and I, I actually, a few years ago, led a study um, in which we estimated that it, it's, it's debatable because it hasn't happened yet, but that perhaps 10% or more, and, and arguably quite a lot more, of all of the species on the planet could be exterminated by climate change. And so um, we should do everything we can to slow it. We can't stop it now, um, but to get it as under control as possible by reducing emissions. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other species that benefit from these environmental changes. So if biodiversity is increased by human activity, is there, again, this is just another devil's advocate question, is there no need for us to be concerned about biodiversity? Should biodiversity not be prioritized in our concerns about the environment because human activity creates biodiversity? Um, uh, humans um, causing harm to biological diversity and also... Uh, acting as a spur for diversification are not exactly in competition. Both of these things actually are true at the same time. So we've exterminated lots of the largest mammals on uh, on the planet, and we're still um, completely stupidly killing rhinoceros and elephants for trinkets and and medicines and so on. Now, um, so we can be doing this and causing harm, but simultaneously species may be benefiting from us, and large numbers are. And so if you think of the time of humans that um, some people, many people now in the sciences and social sciences are starting to think of as calling the Anthropocene, the, the period, the epoch of humans, any period of rapid change in geological history, and we're right in the middle of one now, any period of rapid um, environmental change, it comes with losers, and we are perfectly legitimately concerned about many of those losers, but these terrible events in the history of life on Earth have in the end also been the events that have provided opportunities for new species. So if the dinosaurs hadn't died out, mammals wouldn't have been as successful as they had been, and we certainly wouldn't exist. So bad things happen, but there are also compensating processes. So one of the really fascinating things to me is, I'm not sure it's a six mass extinction yet. Uh, actually, I don't think it is. But 
we're probably in the top 60 mass extinctions of the last half billion years already. But it could be that humans are also spurring, and I believe it is the case, that humans are spurring a massive diversification of life on Earth as well. But of course, many of the, much of that diversification uh, is going to be a somewhat limited interest to you and I during our lifetimes because uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of this diversification taking place over hundreds of thousands of years and millions of years um, after today. I had a park ranger. I talked to the park ranger, uh, and uh, for, he was a forestry manager. He explained that to me that conservationists are those who want to return nature to what it was before it was impacted by human activity. While he said an environmentalist is someone who simply doesn't want any human interference in the processes of nature, even if it means trying to bring nature back to some earlier state. Is that a fair description of conservationist and environmentalist? One wants to bring it back to an earlier state and the other one doesn't want any human impact to be registered on nature. And if that is the case, is either one possible? Um, I, I kind of like that uh, little summary, but I'm, I'm perhaps not going to go with it because if you think of any group of people you know who... Um, might share something. They might be Republican supporters or Democrat supporters, let, uh, for example. Well, do they all think the same thing about everything? Absolutely not. And the same is true in conservation and environmentalism. So environmentalists, and I, I find it hard to distinguish between two categories. I would say that conservationists are very often thinking more primarily about wildlife and environmentalists are perhaps thinking a bit more about humans within the system. But there is no um, complete agreement within either group of people as to how exactly how you would um, go about this. So some environmentalists would like a leave the world nature alone sort of strategy. Others think, well, look, the human population is already getting on to 7.5 billion. In another 50 years, it's going to be about 10 billion. The amount of food that's being consumed per individual human is still on average increasing across the planet. And if we want people in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa to have better diets in the future, that increase is going to have to continue on average across the planet. So food consumption is going to go up over the next 50 years, and it's got to be produced somewhere. So a sort of modern environmentalist might think, well, how do we manage the farming systems, the energy systems, any other system you want to talk about on the planet so as to maximize the benefits to humans with the minimum amount of collateral damage for uh, the rest of the other organisms that live on this planet. So is either conservatism or conservationism or environmentalism as they exist today, how suitable are they for addressing the concerns that we do have for the way that we need to be interacting with nature as we move forward into the future in an era of climate change? Okay, so, so my, my perspective would be that um, it's 
wonderful to think about the past and how nature used to be, but it's not where we are and it's not where we're going, partly because of the continuing population growth and consumption, the changing agricultural processes and so on. And so um, what we need to accept is that the world is going to continue to change and think how do we set sail for a planet in which we um, maximize the benefits to humans and simultaneously minimize what we think might be harmful things to nature. But it isn't just about minimizing harmful things to nature. If we accept there's loads of species now living in places which are only there because of humans, you've only got house sparrows in North America um, because some crazy bloke decided that they wanted to release all of the birds get back to the sparrow in just a little bit, but you write that we need a new rationale for the relationship between humanity and the natural world in which humans are regarded as part of nature, given that we too have evolved and everywhere on earth has already been altered by us. We have to work with natural biological processes, not against them. There is no point in taking on a never-ending fight with the inevitability of eventual failure. The new philosophy opens the door to a more optimistic approach. It permits us to be appreciative of the biological beneficiaries of the human-altered environment while remaining cognizant of the many human-caused losses. Keeping as many species as possible alive on our global arc should still be a primary target for our conservation activities. However, because these species and those that evolve from them are the building blocks from which every future ecological system will be constructed, they will fuel future dynamism. So uh, how would or how should this new rationale for our relationship with nature change the way that we interact or uh, interact with or view nature? Well, I think first thing I would say is that we should, um, when new species arrive, wherever they arrive into the region that you or anyone else might live in, that one shouldn't automatically assume that they're kind of guilty and less proven innocent, which is more or less the stance that's taken. So if you think of environmentalists and conservationists' attitudes to any given species. If it's a native species, it's innocent until proven uh, guilty. So it turns out that something um, is a crop pest or something, we might find, change our mind and say, okay, yes, it's not such a good thing. But if a species arrives from somewhere else, we tend to assume, well, it could be harmful, so we'll sort of blame it until we actually discover that it isn't. 
And that, to me, lacks logic because over the ice ages, um, the distributions of species have changed repeatedly. So everything, effectively, is a new arrival within its homeland. Humans are very, you know, if we put it on a geological time scale, humans are incredibly recent arrival in North America, for example. So, so one is when new things happen and species arrive, generally speaking, ask very carefully, should I spend money trying to keep out something which has a very good chance I'll fail to keep out in the long run? Because ultimately, that's a waste of limited environmental resources. Um, and to think, whenever we are doing anything as humans, not can I stop the loss associated. So if you're, it was a huge railroad project or some other building project, then um, to be thinking, okay, yes, there may be some casualties of any big um, project, but can we get written into these kinds of projects how we improve nature? The current stance, at least in Britain, tends to be if a project of some kind or any kind of development is going to cause harm, then we think about trying to mitigate it and somehow trying to compensate for that bad thing. But if instead we were to try and put into our minds with every project, how do we make the environment better, then even if it's not the same as one that went pre was there previously, then we can both take a more optimistic view, and I would argue actually be more successful in the environment. Now, a lot of conservationists use something called a sort of, even if it's only implicit, something called a baseline. They think this is sort of the way the world should be, the world where a particular habitat should be, the distribution that a particular kind of species should have. And that's a sort of baseline. Now, the difficulty with baseline thinking is that the moment anything changes, your perception is that the world has deteriorated because it's moved away from that conception of what the correct way for nature was. The trouble with baselines is, given that ecology and evolution are dynamic processes, the baseline is the product of all historical change up to that time. But the day after your baseline has passed, those same dynamic processes that deliver change, you now regard all of the changes as bad because they're a departure from the baseline. And this seems to me to be a kind of crazy approach and that we need to think, okay, what do we want? Do we want to maximize the number of species regardless perhaps of their identity? Well, do we want to um, maximize um, the benefits to human from shade, from forest? from water resources that are maintained by soils under natural vegetation, whatever it might be. But I think we need goals. There's no silver bullet here, but we need goals where change does not, equate, does not become equated to deterioration of the system. That's really fascinating because that is the way that we usually uh, frame things, is that we look at them in that way. Uh, how has this view of the world changed your own personal take then on climate change? Are you no longer as concerned about climate change? Has this had no uh, impact on your concerns about climate change or extinction or threats to biodiversity? Um, I, I've definitely revised my views 
but um, I think that it's made me concentrate much more on the root causes of environmental change. Because I think a lot of conservation has been about putting a sticking plaster on a gaping wound or um, you know, giving someone an aspirin to um, make them feel better when actually the problem is some pathogen that your, the medicine that makes you feel slightly better doesn't uh, affect whatsoever. So um, I would say reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, is so minimizing climate change um, looking for ways in which we can do agriculture most efficiently, in fact, so that we get the maximum amount of food per acre of land, so that, and by doing that, we get the food from minimum amount of land possible, which leaves much more land over for the rest of nature. So all of these things, thinking about, well, what are the fundamental drivers here? rather than, um, oh, this species has got a problem. I mean, how do I, how do I save it? That's an entirely valid thing to want to do, but there's no point trying to save something if the underlying processes of human development and change to the environment are going to mean that you've got to keep effectively throwing good money after bad because you sort of protect a species in some way, but the moment you stop giving this emergency um, treatment, it's going to plummet, its numbers are going to plummet, and it's going to die out anyway. You also argue that it might be premature to call the age we are living in the sixth extinction because if, and it's a big if, the human population remains relatively stable after the 21st century or declines, and we develop increasingly efficient means of obtaining our food, as you were just suggesting, then the currently increasing human demand for land may go into reverse. Peak land use may be achieved in the next 100 years or so, with pressures progressively reducing thereafter. This should be our goal. What happens if that is not our goal, if we do not uh, address what you call peak <laughs> land use? Yeah, well, I don't have a crystal ball that works any better than yours. Uh, it's, of course, the moment you start thinking about uh, long-term future, who knows what's going to happen. I like to reflect on what my um, um, great uh, my great-grandparents in the Victorian era might have thought about today. And there are some things, actually, they probably could have predicted, but an awful lot, probably most, they couldn't, and particularly in terms of technological advances that have, or changes that have altered the world. So for us sitting here now and thinking, well, how's the, what are the, how's the world going to operate in 150 years' time? It, we have to be pretty circumspect and say, well, we don't really know. So when I say that I don't think we are quite on course for a sixth mass extinction, it, there's lots of provisos there. But my basis for saying so is that it's going to take thousands of years to several tens of thousands of years at the current rate of extinction to get to the point of one of the big mass extinctions of the big five, like the last one that killed off the dinosaurs. Now, I think that this actually, the sixth mass extinction is a bit of a red herring because we are in a period of accelerated extinction, 
Um, we have caused the extinction of at least 10% of the bird species on the planet already, and it's arguable for at least 5% of the mammals, and it might be 10% of them as well, mostly the large species. So we are certainly in a mini-mass extinction, but I don't think we're going to get there, partly for the reasons you said that I think that technology is going to improve. The human population growth is going to, we're going to continue, the population is going to continue to get bigger, but the world population is, growth is already slowing down. So, but we don't know what will happen in a thousand years' time, of course. So my argument would be twofold. One, we've got a long time in human terms. We've got many thousands of years to sort it, um, a mass extinction being defined as 75% of species going extinct. So we've got a long time to sort it, and I think we're going to decide to avoid it. In fact, the world, you know, um, all of the world um, agreements about environmental um, planning, conservation, it, whether it be greenhouse gas control or um, uh, the amount of land that should be protected, all this kind of thing. Um, so humans are already, not very effectively, but are already coordinating actions more or less at a global level to try and head off the worst environmental changes that might happen, as well as the current rate it's taking thousands of years to get there. So I don't think it's going to happen. And bizarrely, I'm actually more confident that we're going to generate a great number of new speciation events. That is to say, new species coming into existence because of humans. And one of the nicest example is something called the Italian sparrow. So if you go to Venice or Rome, you'll see sparrows that look quite like the um, quite like the sparrows you've got in North America. But they've got brown heads rather than grey heads on top of their heads. And this is a sparrow that was formed by hybridization between the um, original European sparrow, the Spanish sparrow as we now call it, and the house sparrow that started to emerge out of Asia. And they produced a hybrid, and it turns out that their offspring still survives some thousands of years later, and it's the sparrow of Italy. So, and it doesn't really breed, um, interbreed with the, either the house sparrow or the Spanish sparrow any longer. So we've got a brand new hybrid species that's come into existence. And it only exists because humans changed the world and the house sparrow could spread with agriculture from its former, um, where it used to live. And so the Italian sparrow lives in towns and villages. It feeds on drop seeds from agricultural lands. And it's a completely new species that is entirely due to human activity. And we're seeing loads of hybrid plant species coming into existence. And even more important, all of those in the so-called invasive species or non-native species that have been spread around the world, a plant that's gone from North America to Europe or another one that's gone from Europe to North America, eventually, over thousands of years and tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of years, they're going to turn into different species in the different continents. And so by moving so many species around the planet, what we're effectively doing and mixing up the wildlife of the world, what we're effectively doing is giving absolutely
bunches of species, new opportunities to diversify in continents where they used not to live. I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking to the award-winning ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of York, Chris D. Thompson. He is author of Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. You can follow Chris on Twitter at prof underscore C. Thomas. Chris has received the Scientific Medal of the Zoological Society of London, the President's Medal of the British Ecological Society, the Marsh Award for Conservation Biology, and the Marsh Award for climate change research as well. One last question for you, Chris, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question for every interview is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We got an email this week once we announced on social media that you were going to be a guest on our show from a biologist. Now, the biologist apparently had not heard of your work up until this point, and they had only read, uh, you know, the kind of press release that is at your publisher's webpage where they describe your book. And again, the title, uh, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. And they sent me this question. Uh, and so this is my question from hell for you. Numerous people... <laughs> so looking forward to it already. Numerous people comment lately that even if climate change is happening, it's no big deal because other species will pop up to take the place of extinct species or species will just adapt and everything will be okay. What's your response to that kind of statement? Well, I, I think I, I kind of already said it, that there's lots of species that are um, like those on stuck on tropical mountains or um, that only occur on one island that are incapable of moving, they're marooned, and they're going to die out as a result of climate change. Um, so it's a really serious thing for nature. And if people care about these species, then you really want to do something about it. There's lots of other human-related reasons we want to do things about it as well. Um, so I am as firm on as I possibly could be that we should minimize the impacts of climate change. But if you ask me, do I think that a warming of the Earth's climate by... Um, uh, oh, sorry, I'm going to have to use uh, foreign language for you, two degree to three degrees Celsius um, <laughs> um, in over a period of a century is going to be the end of life on Earth, then absolutely not, because there are large numbers of species which are um, associated with warm environments. In fact, there's lots of, you know, the height of diversity is in the tropics, um, and on average, as the climate gets warmer, rainfall tend to go up slightly. We may have much worse droughts as well, as a sort of paradox. And so, on average, across the surface of the Earth, we might actually get a very slight increase in the number of species per unit area. But this is something that remains to be demonstrated that it would happen. So, under the new world, it will be very different but it won't mean that suddenly the life systems of the uh, Earth completely collapse. Chris, I really appreciate you being on the show. I really appreciate your different perspective that we have had from other guests in the past when it comes to biodiversity, when it comes to uh, human impact on our planet and on nature and the way that we view our relationship with nature. And I want to thank our listener, Tom, for suggesting having you on our show during our all-listener guest-suggested show this week. So thank you very much for being on the air with us. It's a 
great pleasure. Thank you very much. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Sports are far more important to black athletes than they are to those who are not black. Sports has been one of the few places blacks have been allowed to make it. As our economic system's institutionalized racism holds back black minds while allowing black bodies avenues to prosperity. This leads to a heritage of giving back. But what happens to that heritage amongst black athletes when sports have become industrialized and militarized while athletes have been co-opted and corporatized? We'll find out in a bit when we talk to Howard Bryant, author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Join us today, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's today, Saturday, July 21st at Carrier's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, just east of Arthur, or just east of, sorry, uh, Western Avenue, uh, beginning, let's say, 3 p.m. and going on until the wee hours of the morning. We'll have details about the party throughout this week's show. Let's start with the art show. This is Art is our second annual This Is Hell Art Show. Upstairs, we'll have the second annual This Is Art Art Show at Second Story Studios. 2251 West Devon above Carrie's Lounge. This year, uh, fe- this year's show features artists like uh, Luke Brecken, who has all the secrets about our national beer ads. Ian Lance, the proprietor of the Pullman Cafe, the only business within the National Historic uh, Pullman District. Julie Murphy, and you can see her art at juliemurphy.info. Laddie Scott Odom, who you may know as laddieo.com on the show. Ron Pollard of wekilleverything.com. And Vicki Jaguli, whose work you can find at our Facebook event page for today's party at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, where we have links to all the artists and musicians who will be uh, showing their work and performing at the party today. Join us again today, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's today, Saturday, July 21st, at Carrier's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. And going until whenever. Let me put this aside. <coughs> Excuse me. This week's question from hell is... What are we going to be talking about on the show 20 years, 22 years from now? What are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite one's the new tin This Is Hell coffee cup, which will also be available at the party. And who knows, maybe you can actually win one during this evening's raffle. We'll be telling you more about the raffle in a bit. Again, the question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Leave your response now at our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one coming up on this week's This Is Hell. Our militarized, corporatized sports industry is in stark contrast to black athletes' heritage of standing up to racism and injustice. Violence and catastrophe are the only two ways inequality has ever been successfully addressed which sucks because I really want more equality. Government surveillance is everywhere, and it's growing faster and faster, and unless we do something about it, we'll have a mass surveillance system that tracks our every move. Wait, 
it's too late already. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a Moment of Truth. Jeff Dorchin returns to mourn the passing of a great life. All that stuff, plus listener feedback, rotten history, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, maybe twist off knowledge, and of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, this is hell. There is a heritage among professional black athletes that has been corporatized as professional sports militarized and ushered in today's authoritarianism. I am so looking forward to speaking with our next guest because every one of the words I just use are hot hot button issues for our show. Our guest is Howard Bryant, author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, a Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Howard. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Great to have you on the show. Uh, real quick, I just want to tell people that they can follow Howard on Twitter at HB underscore ESPN. And you can find out more about Howard at HowardBryant.net. Now, there is some breaking news as a memo from the Miami Dolphins football team was leaked stating that players could face fines or suspension for not standing during the national anthem and uh, presentation of the flag. This is following the NFL adapt. Adopting a, adopting a new uh, no-kneeling policy. President Trump tweeted in response that players should be suspended for one game for kneeling once, and if they kneel again, they should be suspended for the year. And I believe the NFL has changed their no-kneeling policy now in the wake of this leak. So where are we with kneeling this fall during the national anthem at NFL games? Well, I don't think anybody knows. I don't think that the teams have an idea. I think that they're once again, creating an incredible distraction for themselves because they can't get out of their own way by trying to muscle the players. I think they're cow- they're being cowed by the president and don't understand the fact that he's creating an issue. He's using them to be a sort of a wedge issue that isn't even really a huge issue when you look at what took place during the season last year and what the players have negotiated with the owners this year. Um, they're being the owners are being taken by this president. There's no question about that to me. However, I don't really care about the the owners on this or the president as much as I'm concerned about the decisions the players made by not sticking together last year. The fact that they had been called SOBs by this president last September. The fact that you had Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed both on their way to filing collusion lawsuits against the league, that the players would recognize this battlefield and they would see what it was uh, being under assault as they were from both their owners and the president of the United States. And then they would go into business with the owners last December, making that $89 million partnership to fight social justice with the owners. And that social justice partnership was headed by an organization called Rise, which is owned and operated, of course, by Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, who's the one, the very person this week who came out and said that his team, he was going to suspend his players if they had knelt during the national anthem. So here is the leader of your social justice movement essentially threatening to suspend players for fighting for social justice. And what bothers me about this is that you could see this coming 
and the players chose to sign on with Rise instead of supporting Colin Kaepernick and supporting Eric Reed and fighting these people and recognizing that it was a hostile environment. I think that if you're going to maintain this heritage and if you're going to believe in this heritage, then part of it comes with struggle. It comes with risk and that this negotiation undermined those principles. And I think we're seeing that now. So, and I want to get back into that and how it has kind of collapsed, how the way that the new corporatized athlete has reacted to this instead of the way that they stood up in the past, people like Muhammad Ali and Paul Robeson. But um, you write that sports was always more than a game uh, for the black athlete. How is sports more than just a game for the black athlete? What do white fans miss in their understanding of black athletes supporting a cause when they do not realize that for black athletes, sports is far more than just a game, far more than what it is to white athletes? Well, I think the first thing is, is that unlike, unlike most of the white fans and unlike most of the white athletes, the black players are the ones who made it in their communities. They're the ones who had the first opportunities to thrive in a budding integrated world. They were the ones who had the first access to education. I always think about how different the world would be in, of sports, how different the world of sports would be if all the great players, the Wilt Chamberlains and the Bill Russells and the Michael Jordans, and all of these players, if they had gone to historically black colleges instead of integrating those white schools, Kansas and UCLA and the rest of them, and North Carolina, the black athlete is the most prominent students on those campuses before the doctors and the lawyers and the future politicians and the rest of them. So the black body is what opened up black, the black community to integration, to opportunities. That's why it's different. People don't realize that for all this talk about the military, Major League Baseball was integrated before the military was. And you think about all those black soldiers who died for freedom, they were in segregated units in the First World War and the Second World War. And so when you look at where the opportunity came from, when you look at the most prominent people in our culture right now, it's the athlete. That's why people look at LeBron James, but don't look at Dirk Nowitzki, even though he's German, or they don't, they don't look at any of the white stars. To you know, They don't look at Gordon Hayward, or they don't look at Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. To to speak for them because they already have people outside of the cult, outside of the sports culture speaking for them in very prominent ways. But in the black community, sports and entertainment are usually the, the, the people who are the most prominent. So there's a responsibility that the black athlete has always felt to that community because they're the ones who made it. They're the, they're, I've, I've made the argument in the book that the black athlete is the most important, most visible most influential black employee this culture has ever produced, this country has ever produced. And so that history, it stays with the athlete and it stays with the community. No matter how many points Michael Jordan scored, no matter how many championships he won, what's the one thing that people say about Michael Jordan? They still say, well, you know, was he really there for the community? That will stay with Michael Jordan for the rest of his life. That makes him different from Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Dick Butkus and Jim McMahon and the rest of them. 
nobody's asking, nobody is putting an asterisk on those guys' careers by saying, hey, well, what did you do in the neighborhood? It's a complete difference. It's a real thing. We are speaking with Howard Bryant. He is author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and The Politics of Patriotism. And throughout our show today, we are only featuring guests that were suggested by listeners. And we want to thank listener Jack, who suggested Howard and Jack will soon be receiving some This Is Hell subvertising stickers in the mail for doing so. This is what I find incredibly fascinating about your book, Howard, because the way that uh, so often, integration and desegregation of sports is portrayed. Those stories are portrayed. Is that they are a reflection of some greater integration and desegregation that was happening outside of sports. This is just another example of the fight for equality and liberty and freedom uh, for black Americans. And that's that's what Jackie Robinson was, that he was just another example of that desegregation, that integration that was happening. But in fact, from the way that you write about it, it would seem that it's the other way around, that the first steps of integration, the first steps of desegregation happen in sports. How do we view those events and those people differently when we see them not as just groundbreakers and people who are uh, breaking into a new frontier within sport, but within all of society, that they were the first? Um, not quite sure what you mean by that, by the first. They were the first to integrate into society. They were the first ones to get past the the segregated lines of society. Doctors yeah, exactly. weren't doing it. Engineers weren't doing it. It was only yeah. athletes. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I get you now. I think what it is is that that this that the way to look at it, at least the way that I look at it, is is that this is the tragedy of it all. Why did it fall to the black athlete in the first place? It tells you more about the segregated society that that the brains were roadblocked by segregation that the people that we're told to aspire to be now through education, those opportunities, had they not been roadblocked in the late 1800s and the early 1900s and the, to the present, and you know, less so in the present, but still far, far less encouraged as, than, than being a, a singer or a ball player, things might have been a little different. We might not be having this conversation. We might not be thinking of, about needing Michael Jordan to speak for us because we would have our doctors and our lawyers and our scientists and people to do that and our businessmen that would be in the community already. However, we, we know better. You know that this is a question of labor. You know this is a question of, of racism. You know that all of these different reasons that, that the player is important are rooted in much larger concepts. And so you think about creating a workforce of bodies. You you talk about being first. We're talking about the body. One of the problems that I've had with this entire project in working on this book was that it came back to me when you're thinking that the pathway was supposed to be slavery to sharecropper to surgeon. And it didn't work that way. It's, it's slavery to sharecropper to ball player. So the body still comes first. And that's been the battle throughout, that this, this whole story was supposed to be that, that, the, that the athlete was going to open up a pathway to education. It was supposed to open up all those different opportunities. You've heard these stories over the years that, well, you know, even if a player blows out his knee, that just, or even if he's not good enough to play in the NBA or the NFL, then just being on the college campus was going to enrich them. And what do we see now? 
you know, hundred years later, what do we see now? We see that the players aren't educated. They're not learning anything. They're using their bodies the same way they used their bodies a hundred years ago. They don't get paid for it. And they're leaving college, whether they're not good enough to play, whether they make $50 million a year in the NBA, or whether they blew out their knee and didn't make it, that they still don't necessarily have the education in the large numbers that they're supposed to have. So what are we still talking about? We're still talking about the commodification of the black body. And this this is the reason why, in some ways, it's this even disappointing today that you still have people saying, well, we've got to pay the players. And I am an advocate of paying players for their compensation. And part of the reason is, is because the rest of this has been a failure. So if we're going to just call it for what it is, you're bringing these black people onto this court, onto the basketball court to earn money for your billion dollar universities. So compensate them and make them part of the, make them business partners. It's a surrender in a lot of ways, but in some ways, at least it's more reflective of what's happening. And you also write about, uh, and we'll get into how black athletes have fallen short in their support for people like uh, for people like Colin Kaepernick in a moment. But you also write about how there has been a, a certain level of resurgence in black athlete activism. You write that the 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin and the 2014 Ferguson unrest in the wake of Michael Brown's killing, followed by several high-profile killings of African Americans by police, brought the players, led by LeBron James, out from behind the tinted glass of their escalades. Why these events? Why do you think it took the police killings of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown to activate athletes? I mean, because police violence already existed. Uh, Mass incarceration already existed. Police criminalization of the black community already existed. So what do you think it was about these events that provoked people like LeBron James out from behind the tinted glass of their escalades? Technology, the videos, I, I think social media, I think that you weren't getting this in the mainstream. Mainstream stuff, mainstream outlets don't cover these issues. And when they do cover them, they cover them completely through the eyes of law enforcement and through the eyes of the mainstream. But when you're on YouTube or on Facebook and on Twitter and, and your peers and are sending you these viral dash cam videos that are unfiltered by media, and you look for your own two eyes what took place, and you see Tamir Rice being shot within two seconds at point-blank range, how do you not react to that? How do you not feel for that? How do you not have some sort of reaction? And how do you, and how do, you do nothing when, you deal, when you're dealing from your community back home when they're saying, hey, man, how come you didn't do anything about this? How come you didn't say anything? Once again, people look toward the black athlete to speak out on these issues. You're the guy who made it in this community, and you didn't say anything? That's and that's the interesting thing about this specific part of the story is that we're telling these athletes to shut up and dribble and shut up and play ball when they actually have something to say about this specific issue of, of police brutality and misconduct in a lot of ways because they're from the communities where these events are taking place. One of the interesting things about having this is the, is the, the idea of Carmelo Anthony in Baltimore. He's from West Baltimore. Of course he was there. When Freddie Gray was killed, it was it, you saw him arm in arm with his people. He didn't send a few dollars, you know, along the back channels to some HBCU, and that was a sign of him doing his part. He did what Ali did and what Jackie did. You go back to the people and you stand in your communities, and that's not something that you see athletes doing anymore because they are 
in a different class now. It's not the old days where you know, Hank Aaron's kid, you know, he you know went to public school. It's not like that anymore. So to see the LeBron Jameses and the Carmelo Anthony's and Dwayne Wade's come outside from their millions and to say, no, we're part of this, is really special. And it's important. I mean, it's not everything, but it's important. So how much is, because you write how the revival of the heritage has been made possible through the old cliche that for the first time in decades, now works in favor of social justice. Now, I'm not trying to be cynical here. I'm trying to d- d- figure... You can be cynical. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out if, to what degree this is a business decision because these are such corporate brands now. People like LeBron James are a corporate brand. So how much is social justice currently a good marketing strategy, especially for black athletes? Because social justice may have ended uh, Colin Kaepernick's career. So, so how are these two different types of social justice, one that might play well in the media and one that does not? Well, and that's a big deal. I mean, that is one of the things that you have to, you know, you've got to reconcile. And I think that you're right. When I asked this question, I asked this question, I think, in Chapter 9. Do you join the heritage uh, simply by wearing a T-shirt? Are you, are you really putting yourself, or are we putting athletes in the pantheon of Paul Robeson and Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali? by having Nike run a commercial for you. There's no risk involved there. And when you really want to be cynical about it, and there are many reasons to be cynical about it, in some ways, in, in some ways, you know, that, I don't know, that, that protest can be as profitable as patriotism if you advertise it the right way and if you make it hip and make it cool and do all of those things. So to me, it's not a cynical question. It's a good question. It's a question that I ask myself working on this book. And to go back to Kaepernick, absolutely, in Colin's case, you could ask yourself, was it worth it when you saw what was taking place? That, you know, did it really make a a dent? And and I don't know. I'm glad he did what he did because he felt he had to do it. I'm very much concerned, I'm very much concerned today that the corporations that are involved here have so much power that they get to decide how much voice you're going to have because they, you know, they shut down your money and they can end your career. They, they take everything. And so do you need different strategies and different tactics to to even have any import? On the other hand, you look at someone like LeBron James, whose net worth is nearly a half a billion dollars, and he's 33 years old, that's got to translate to power somewhere, in my opinion. You quote Al Sharpton, because I want to get back to your discussion of uh, Michael Jordan a little bit earlier. Uh, You quote Al Sharpton recalling during the 2017 NBA playoffs, I'm watching TV at 5 o'clock in the morning in the gym, and they're saying that LeBron got more points than Michael Jordan, but but there'll never be another Michael Jordan. But LeBron far excels over Michael in terms of standing up for causes by putting on that hoodie for Trayvon and that I Can't Breathe t-shirt for Eric Garner. I can't think of anything remotely close that Michael did. To what degree can we just chalk that off to being from a different time, a different now, that the kind of thing LeBron is doing with the hoodie for Trayvon and the I Can't Breathe t-shirt for Eric 
things that would or things that would not have been tolerated to the degree that they are now in the 1980s. They wouldn't have been or, or, they wouldn't have been tolerated in the 1990s during the era when or Jordan played, even despite him being a transcendent talent of his age, like LeBron is. Can we just chalk this off to Michael Jordan being in a different time? His lack of contributions to the heritage. No. Absolutely not. Michael Jordan made a conscious decision not to get involved in politics and not to get involved in, you know, he, he decided, Michael Jordan was the game. If Michael Jordan had decided that he wanted to be in the footsteps of Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson, then we'd be having a different conversation today. Michael could have done whatever he wanted to do, but it wasn't Michael's way. I'm not saying that Michael Jordan needed to be Paul Robeson. Michael Jordan needs to be Michael Jordan. But there's no the people make the times the times don't make the people so when you have that transcendent character you get a Jackie Robinson when you get a when you have that transcendent personality you end up with a Muhammad Ali when you have a personality that doesn't necessarily want to engage in controversy and wants to focus on on his corporate branding and wants to focus on being a ubiquitous corporate superstar to everyone, you get Michael Jordan. And when you, 25 years later, when you have a young player who has decided that he wants to take that responsibility to fuse his public personality with his activism and with his advocacy of black people and and engage in that sort of delicate dance between corporate and individual, you get LeBron James. So once again, the people I think make the times. I don't think that you would simply go. I mean, let's. I mean, let's put it this way. I mean, you had John. You had John Brown and Nat Turner in the 1800s. The times didn't tolerate those guys either, but they existed. You quote NBA star Carmelo Anthony saying at the ESPYS while standing beside LeBron James, Chris Paul, and Dwayne Wade. Quote, he says, the four of us are talking to our fellow athletes with the country watching because we cannot ignore the realities of the current state of America. The system is broken. The problems are not new. The violence is not new. And the racial divide is definitely not new. But the urgency for change is at an all-time high. Now, Howard, excuse me for a second while I try to channel my best Fox News Channel host, but uh, how would you respond to the argument that the system isn't broken for any of the people standing on that dais, why why aren't they proof that the system works? Because they're four people with ridiculous talent, and this is the argument that people want, want to make. This is the shut up and dribble argument. Well, it's okay for you, so what are you complaining about? Well, they're not talking about themselves. They're talking about a lot of other people. They're talking about millions and millions of other people. And if all we're going to do is advocate for ourselves, that's not really advocacy. It's selfishness. They weren't talking about themselves. They weren't playing the victim. I don't think that Carmelo Anthony or LeBron or anybody up there said, my life is bad. They said, our system is in trouble. The system is broken. Systems can be broken that benefit you the most because they're broken. That's one of the things about a system. It depends on who you are. And just because you benefit from a system doesn't mean that you recognize that it's that you refuse to recognize that it is broken or that you will say that it's not. So I think that those athletes, to me, what they were doing was they weren't talking about themselves. They were talking about Michael Brown. They were talking about Eric Garner. They were talking about Freddie Gray. They were talking about mass incarceration. They were talking about issues that they 
may not be affected by directly, or that they are uh, affected by directly because of friends and family members and people like them who are caught up in those systems. LeBron James didn't come from Beverly Hills, even though he lives out there now. LeBron James came from Akron. I'm sure he knows a lot of people caught up in those systems for no reason. A lot of people who were doing life sentences for selling marijuana that today would make some white corporate businessman a millionaire. You write, today's players are ubiquitous, shaped by the marketing muscle of some of the world's biggest corporations. They are the public possessions of an ostensibly post-racial commodified world. They are also financially conflicted because maintaining the traditions of the heritage means challenging the corporate mainstream, but today they are the corporate mainstream. They are the power. They've, they're expected to protest. So when it comes to the black athlete, how, are much, how much are they uh, cutting their nose off in spite of their face? How much are black athletes expected to challenge a system from which they benefit? And how little are white athletes expected to challenge the system from which they benefit? Well, white athletes aren't expected to do anything. And that's and they haven't. I mean, there's no history of the white athlete in any large measure getting involved in these issues. You have women, you know, you've had white women get involved in women's issues. Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King and a lot of those players, absolutely, there's a heritage there. But in terms of white male athletes joining their teammates, their black teammates to get involved, there is no urgency. And it is a delicate dance for these players. It's a delicate dance to be a LeBron James where you are completely enmeshed in corporate America. You have your own film companies, you're worth almost, you know, he's going to be a he's going to be a billionaire very soon. And so can you be on both sides of that fence? Is there a way to have a, a sort of solidarity with the individuals who are in the street while still being that corporate person? who is climbing into a system that you say is broken in a lot of different ways. And when we say systems are broken, I'm not simply just talking about the justice system. I'm talking about American capitalism in general. And so when you think about these things, how will these players navigate that dance? How will they negotiate this? Sometimes I think about it in terms of a a secondary front of a heritage where you have these players begin to change some of these structures that maybe you do have when the players exercise some of their power. Maybe you do have the players have a you know player-owned leagues where the players have a share and they're not just very high-paid players with no with no stake and with no equity in the game and so when you have equity in the sport now you can change some of the hiring practices and you can do some of those things maybe your activism Maybe your activism is that, that, that dream that a lot of people seem to think works, where you change from within. I'm not a huge fan of that. I used to believe in that. I'm not sure how much I believe in that anymore. But maybe these are some of the ways that it works going forward. I don't know. But I do know that the players, as they rise in power and as they rise with their salaries, it's going to be a very interesting question to see if they simply turn in to the very people they're protesting or if they can find a new way. So what explains to you why sport doesn't see fighting for civil rights as the right thing to do? And to you, how much does this reveal white supremacy embedded within sport, uh, within the leagues, within team ownership, or even the general public that makes up the fans? Absolutely, because 
because when you look at the structure of professional sports, it's very simple. White owners, white coaches, white media, white season ticket buyer, black player. So through that lens, it is a, a lens of, of white supremacy in some ways, in a lot of ways, because they control it and the players perform it. And so, and a few people get to trickle on through, obviously. And when I say a few, it's not hyperbole. There is one black owner in professional sports right now, majority owner, and it's Michael Jordan, of all the professional sports. And Derek Jeter has a piece of the, of the Miami Marlins, and Magic Johnson has a small piece of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and Serena Williams has a small piece of the Miami Dolphins. But in terms of majority ownership, Michael Jordan, and that's it. So absolutely, you've got to deal with this question of what are we going to do with the black athlete in terms of ownership. The fans believe that the player is there to perform for them, and that's it. I believe that the player is a citizen, and these players over the last several years have begun to show their citizenship, and they've begun to force the public to deal with their citizenship. It's not always been successful, as we've seen with Colin Kaepernick, and it's certainly not very successful when you see how media has decided to deal with the citizenship of players by questioning their citizenship, by calling them by calling them un-American and unpatriotic for taking a knee over social injustice. So it's certainly not easy, and it's certainly not something that I think has been accepted in any large measure, which is what they're fighting for. And I think that the players have a very, very difficult road ahead of them, and sometimes it's just much easier because let's not also forget that the narrative of professional sports is to tell the black athlete to be grateful, to tell all the players that they need to be grateful for their good fortune. And, and especially when you're the black athlete, you're the only, you're the only super rich, well-paid person in the country who's not allowed to speak more. I mean, why do we listen to Donald Trump? Why is he president? Because he has money. Why do we listen to Oprah or Mark Cuban? Because they have money. But when LeBron James speaks, we say, shut up and dribble and entertain us. So the narrative has to change as well. And once again, a lot of players simply decide, hey, it's not worth it. I'm going to stick to what I do and collect my money, and, and, and we can't make a dent. And then there are other players who say, no, I've got a platform. I've got a responsibility. I'm going to take that responsibility, and I'm going to take my chances and see what happens. And you point out, though, how often those people have to equivocate, how they have to conciliate because of the way that they are delivering their message. They don't want to be seen as, quote-unquote, anti-police. You read that Chris Paul negotiated, prefacing his comments in the same qualifying fashion, either that not all cops are bad or by announcing his personal bona fides, Paul's uncle was a police officer. And if that special qualification were required for him to voice an opinion in post 9-11 America, perhaps it was. What is the dog whistle uh, message, if you will, that is being sent to whites when Chris Paul mentions his uncle is a cop or when uh, LeBron James or anyone equivocates uh, that black on black violence is the same as police violence against the African-American community? Absolutely. The, the the message is once again that the players are always in retreat, and that the and that the police have no accountability. That they don't have to have any accountability, and that that there's something once again, and especially in the backdrop of post nine eleven America, that the police are conflated as as the military as heroes, and that these people 
simply by putting on the uniform are doing something heroic and that cannot be they cannot be challenged and as long as that narrative exists the less likely you're going to see any sort of reform because there's no there's no desire to reform on on their parts and i always think about it this way as well especially in the post 911 world where you see people wearing NYPD hats and FBI hats and CIA t-shirts and they're not doing it ironically they're doing it as some sort of fashion statement some of these these authoritarian symbols are now fashion statements these people are also your juries they make up they're your peers they make up the jury system so if you're going to treat police like your favorite ball team how on earth are you going to get them to become accountable when they shoot somebody unnecessarily so once again the dog whistle to me is this notion of of heroes and accountability and the the fact that even the notion of challenging police makes you un-American. It's a very dangerous road to be walking down. You write the black body is so important to NFL owners that it allows the league to celebrate Hall of Fame linebacker Ray Lewis, implicated in 2000 as a witness to an unsolved double murder. Lewis pleaded out of a two-count murder charge in exchange for his testimony and a guilty plea to obstruction of justice. To this day, the murders remain unsolved, and Lewis was not only welcomed back to the NFL but never had to leave. The NFL fined him $250,000, but placed him in such high esteem that his team, the Baltimore Ravens, gave him a front office position after he retired and even erected a statue in his honor. ESPN, a league television partner, made him a lead on the prestigious Monday Night Football broadcast team. How could the football public accept such a vulgar incongruity? In a sense, it was easy. Lewis fit the stereotype of what a black man is supposed to be, violent, aggressive, criminal. It was easy for Steve Biscotti the owner of the Ravens to navigate Ray Lewis, black male anger sold. It was what the public expected from them, and it allowed white male owners to seem benevolent without having their power threatened. Is Ray Lewis a success with the NFL because he plays a stereotype-laden, even racist role that white team owners want to reinforce about African Americans? Is Ray Lewis reinforcing for white people that black people are angry violent, aggressive criminals? Well, by his elevation, absolutely. I mean, Ray Lewis is whatever Ray Lewis is, but I think that, I think it's in contrast when you think about how Ray Lewis has been elevated in contrast to Colin Kaepernick. What crime did Colin Kaepernick commit? What did Colin Kaepernick do to be treated the way he's been treated with the full weight of the federal government coming down on him. And when I say the federal government, I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg attacking Colin Kaepernick as well. And I'm talking about the, you know, the Congress thing, you know, things about him as well. And all of these different, I mean, and each level of government has found a way to criticize this man, which is, which runs completely counter to the supposed principles that we have. And so when you think about this, you think about the weight of the country coming down on somebody who has a problem with an issue, by the way, police brutality, that cities are paying billions of dollars in settlements on. The city of Chicago has paid billion dollars in police settlements. Your tax-paying dollars go to 
paying out these different settlements after Laquan McDonald gets killed or after another kid gets killed. And no one does anything to Ray Lewis. In fact, Ray Lewis still has the floor. Ray Lewis has a job with the Baltimore Ravens. And Ray Lewis has a statue. And Michael Vick went out and told you know, Colin Kaepernick that he needed to cut his hair and some other ridiculousness. So I think when you put those players in contrast, you say, why are we celebrating and why are we rewarding the Ray Lewises of the world? Why do they get the floor when Colin Kaepernick exercised his citizenship in a very thoughtful way, even if you disagreed with him? Why does this man live on the margins of society right now in terms of his legitimacy? Why is he on the outside of it simply by disagreeing? Obviously, he's a very rich man from his NFL contracts and such, but for what the country has done to him, why are we listening to Ray Lewis? That's my question. How much do you think Colin Kaepernick's actions were prompted, even provoked by, as you describe in your book, the increased militarization of the NFL? Is Are, are Colin Kaepernick's actions being condemned because not only did the NFL militarize football, but because the NFL militarized and even pushed even towards authoritarianism its audience. Absolutely, 100%, because post-9-11, they have embedded the military for money, not because of patriotism in any way, into the sport that you've got. You've got NFL teams and sports teams across the league, whether it's NASCAR, whether it's the NBA, whether it's the NFL, hockey, or the NFL involved in these relationships with with the Pentagon, selling war through sports, recruiting kids through football. And and Kaepernick's protest wasn't even about the military at all, and yet you have these symbols embedded into the game day experience. The police are on the field and they are conflated with the military. You have law enforcement appreciation nights across all pro sports. And so, of course, Colin Kaepernick is not going to be welcome when you challenge that, because now you're challenging the money, which is why what I'm saying is that we're not talking simply about systems. We're talking about all of the systems. We're not just talking about criminal justice system. We're talking about a system that allows incredible corporate pressure to be placed on anyone who is disagreeing with what's taking place. And they pre- they place that enormous corporate pressure on you through your wallet. And that message is being sent. It's almost like Metacomet. You know, who wants to see, you know, do you want to be the next Colin Kaepernick? And that is the pressure that they place on you. Are you going to be the guy that gets blackballed next? And what did they do to Eric Reed? Eric Reed protested for the full season in 2017. He's also out of a job right next to Colin Kaepernick. So the message is being sent. The message is being sent very clearly, especially in the NFL, and which is why it is still so disappointing to me to see that that message was being sent and the players still went into business with the owners, and especially because these players, multi-million dollar players with huge corporate connections of their own, they've all got their own foundations, they all know people, they could have raised their money on their own without the owners and done their own social justice projects. They didn't need the owners, and yet they immediately went right back to the nest. 
You know, I couldn't help but thinking while I was reading your book that we have seen growing inequality over the last 30 years. And over the last 30 years, we have seen uh, an increase in professional sports uh, athletes' uh, salaries. And potentially that would lead to uh, more of turning a back on the community and forgetting about the the heritage of speaking up for the community, speaking up for those who did not make it. How much do you think... Uh, sport, the black athletes not speaking up for those who have been marginalized. How much do you think that has contributed to growing inequality, that they have not spoken out about growing inequality? Well, I think you've got a generation of people, whether we're talking about whether we're talking about athletes or whether we're talking about just rank-and-file employees. You've, we've lived the last 40 years in retreat. You don't have, you look at the growing inequalities going back to the late 1970s and the early 80s. And so this is normal for this generation. It's normal for this generation to be anti-labor, to undermine their own interests without even knowing it, or by knowing it and just simply believing that they're going to align themselves with, with corporations and with multimillionaires and, and with people that they have nothing in common with who are undermining their own interest every single day. It's commonplace now for this to be the norm, just like it's commonplace now post-9-11 to have flags the size of the 50-yard line on a football game that fans say they don't want to be political. So because all of these things are commonplace, you need to have these conversations and you need to sort of confront them and say, look, this is not what it needs to be. This is not what it was before. And, and you're also being manipulated for money by corporations. And one of those corporations is the federal government in general, in terms of selling war at the ballpark, that they're recruiting your 12-year-old when you go to a Bears game. That all of these things are taking place. They don't have to be that way. And if you choose to do nothing, they will continue to be this way. And I simply don't believe that this is, that what we're seeing is what it should be. I have a hard time with the National Guard in Wisconsin paying the Milwaukee Brewers $49,000 just to sing God Bless America. That's not patriotism. That's profit. Why don't we view the American flag? Why don't we view the national anthem? Why don't we view the three times during every Washington Nationals game that you have to stand for the flag and show some sort of nationalist response to whatever cue they're giving you? Why don't we view that as political? Why? Uh, how can we get away? How can people get away because with people the... have made that people have made the distinction, especially sports fans. They've made the distinction between patriotism and politics. They don't look at the American flag as political at all. They view it as patriotism. It's not the same thing. Yet they view Colin Kaepernick as political. Essentially, they've turned the word political into anything I don't like. But they don't look at the flags and the flyovers and the jets and the color guards and the soldiers and all of this stuff as political. Of course it's political. We've been fighting two wars since 9-11. This couldn't be more political. And yet the fans have allowed this to exist because you had a moment, and I lived in New York and I was in Yankee Stadium during 2001 and all of those things when that stuff took place, was that this moment was supposed to be a healing moment where this country was devastated. I make the argument in the book as well that 9-11 is the most devastating moment in the history, maybe in the history of this country, certainly in the last 50 years. There's no doubt about that. When I was a kid, we were afraid of the Russians. We were afraid of the Cold War. Today, it's all terrorism and that you give away your freedoms and you give away 
surveillance and you give away all of these different all of these different sort of pillars of privacy you give them away to keep your country safe or the idea of keeping the country safe all of that is a byproduct of 9/11 all of what we're looking at is 9 is 9/11 we're talking about this in sports the way we are because of 9/11 and so you can't get away from that and in, in inside of that post 9/11 viewpoint of sports, you have a public that separates politics from patriotism, politics from, or patriotism from commercialism, from capitalism, that they make these very interesting negotiations with themselves. When they see the flag, they don't see it as political, but when they see Colin Kaepernick, they certainly do. So you also write that in the years following the 9-11 attacks, sports became an extension of the War Department. Is football being, and is sports in general, I should say, uh, but let's focus on football because they've been so wrapped in the flag. Is football being an extension of the War Department, is that good for football? Is that good for democracy? Is that good for America? No, it's not good for any of it because it's unnecessary. People say they want the game, just give them the game. The players can have their individual causes and their individual thoughts, but if you're pay- if you're a paying customer, most paying customers say they want to go to the game to get away from their problems. They want to go that sports is supposed to be a diversion for them. I don't think it's a diversion when I walk in there and I see 50 soldiers and I see an F-14 jet or a stealth bomber flying over a stadium. That's not a diversion at all. That makes me think we're in a state of war, which we have been. So, yes, I don't think that it's something that is necessary, and I don't think it's something that is appropriate, not just necessary, I think it's inappropriate. I don't think that these two should mix, because I don't believe that they do. I think that when you are a a fan and you want to go watch the Bears play the Packers, then go let the Bears play the Packers. What does this have to do with the National Guard doing an induction ceremony at halftime? It's not the same thing. One last question for you, Howard, and I really appreciate you being on our show because this is a fascinating book. Howard Bryant is author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and The Politics of Patriotism. Howard is a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the magazine and appears regularly on ESPN programming. Listener Jack suggested Howard, and Jack will soon be receiving some subvertising stickers from This Is Hell in the mail for giving a suggestion we used on the show. Howard was the guest editor of the 2017 edition of the Best American Sports Writing and has won several awards for his journalism. One last question for you, Howard, and it is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or and this is where I think this one will fall in. Our audience is going to hate your response. Is the United States increasingly tolerant of whatever you want to call it, alt-right, fascism, neo-fascism, authoritarianism, uh, because sports in the U.S. have become increasingly authoritarian in their message and narrative, as well as the makeup of its ownership? Well, I don't think that's controversial at all. Absolutely. I think it's all I think it's all of the above. I think that when you look at these symbols and when these symbols become normal, and also I think that you have a country that has never reconciled 9/11. I once again, I can't help but go back to it. We have decided in this country after September 11th that we were going to 
embed our entertainment and embed our lives with the military, whether you're talking about camo fashions, whether you're talking about camo jerseys, whether you're talking about the military inducting soldiers at baseball games. And I think that we have tolerated this, and I think that we've always been moving in this direction anyway. I've always believed that half the population has always been on that side anyway, so it's not as though there's this huge sea change. I think that I think that this country has always been split, split along racial lines, and you can go back to 1861 or 1761 if you want. So it's not that big a deal to me in terms of... Um, Sea change. It's not a huge shift to me, but in terms of the, in terms of looking at it and the acceptance of it, I think we've, I think we've given away to that idea. But I think we've given away to something else too, and that is allowing, allowing corporate manipulation of these images and the appropriation of these images to be normalized. And I think it's very, very dangerous. And I think that the police. Being what they did on 9/11 was incredibly heroic. They were doing their jobs. They did what they needed to do. The same is true for the National Guard and the military. But what's taken place over the last 17 years has been nothing short of frightening, and that includes all of the different surveillance laws that have been changed and all the different wiretaps and everything else that are taking place. It's a frightening time, and it's only getting more scary as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and it's getting really scary, especially when, like, as you were saying, the corporate manipulation of sports message uh, post 9-11 has helped the rise of the far right. And it, it just makes it, it, it. I saw this coming. I saw this coming because of the reaction to 9-11 at sporting events. Why don't you think other sports fans saw that this was going, that this was happening, that this uber militarization of sports and almost embrace of authoritarianism was going to provoke even farther and farther right wing ideas? Well, I think that people feel like they didn't do their part and that they haven't done their part. And I think that post 9-11, I think whether you're talking about Iraq or if you're talking about Afghanistan, I, I think you're looking at a public that's not in fatigues right now, and you don't have a draft. And I think that people feel like you have to support everything that takes place that the military does because you're not the one doing the fighting. And that you buy into this narrative and that you don't want to be the one who challenges it because the world is a frightening place right now. It's the fear talking. And then I also think that when you're talking about the alt-right and the, and the racial side of it, I think you're also looking at just a completely stratified country in terms of in terms of belief system i think that there's a, a there is a um, a wide assault on information and on journalism and on free press and all of these different things for political gain for personal gain and i think it i think it's very very dangerous and i think that you're watching that danger in action. And at some point, all of these things sort of bring you to the same spot, which is confrontation. And that confrontation is to look at where you are and to look at your country and to look at your images and your symbols. And you have to decide whether or not this is what you believe. And, and I think we're at that point now. Or even if those symbols are real, or if they're myths, or they're fictions, you know, it makes you want to go back and read. Yeah, how... but you've got to be a citizen. Absolutely. Yeah. It's up to you to be a citizen. Figure this out. Hmm. 
Howard, I really appreciate you being on the show, and I'm going to annoy you in the future with emails to get you back on the show. So thank you so much for talking with us this morning. Well, thank you. Call anytime. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. There are a couple ways we can confront inequality and challenge it head-on. Strategies that have proven effective time and time again at leveling the playing field and bringing back some level of equality. And those two methods are... Violence and catastrophe. I know, I was hoping for something a little more uplifting, too. We'll learn what makes things more equal when we speak with historian Walter Scheidel, author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Walter is the Dickinson Professor in the Humanities, Professor of Classics and History, and a Kennedy Grossman Fellow in Human Biology at Stanford University. And again, we want to thank prolific guest suggester Tom for the suggestion of having Walter on the show. Thanks to Don for giving us the suggestion of Howard Bryant. Let's go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on Facebooks, Twitters, whatever? Uh, On Twitter, a ton of people, listeners and Pascats, tried to convince musician slash filmmaker Boots Riley to go on This Is Hell to talk about his film Sorry to Bother You. Uh, that included tons of listeners, like I said, and also a uh, past guest, Andrew Hartman, who wrote, I've gone on the show twice. It's truly excellent. I'd pay to hear Boots on the show. That's a good idea. We should charge. <laughs> we should be charging people to listen to the show. That's a good idea. Uh, also, uh, it warmed my heart to see Tressie McMillan Cottom write, one of the best interviews I did went on book tour. I hope this breaks through to Boots Riley because I would like to hear this send up. And then finally, uh, past guests. So yeah, there's a flood of love. And then finally it ended on a sour note when Maximilian Alvarez from last week wrote, OMG Boots Rally, I will dunk myself in a vat of crap if you, <laughs> if, if it will get you to do this. <laughs> Which uh, to, then I, to then I responded, that's going too far. Uh, so uh, thank you to everyone. And thanks to all the listeners who tried to get this, uh, tried to get Boots on the show. Um, I am, he got in touch with me via DM finally to uh, put me in touch with his people who are doing his scheduling. So hopefully... Next week, uh, we have a timeout that uh, we've offered to him, so we'll see if we can make that work. I'm still working on it. Um, Also on Facebook, I posted a bunch of really good articles this week, including uh, one piece I liked a lot called Loneliness is the Common Ground of Terror and Extremism by Nabila Jaffer uh, that I liked, and she sort of gets into a lot of what Hannah Arendt wrote about extremism um, and sort of modern times. Also, um, Pascas Anna Clark, who when she talked about the poisoning of Flint, she mentioned um, the Kerner Commission from 1968 on segregation in the inner cities. And I don't know if you've ever looked up the Kerner Commission. Oh. Um, it's a, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's really an intense I didn't. Document. I'd never heard of it. Um, so I shared an article about that. And if you get a chance to just look up Kerner Commission, K-E-R-N-E-R. And it's just a uh, you know report that was put together about the problems of inner city America in 1968. And uh, it's the same crap we're talking about now. Yeah, my big focus in uh, for my undergraduate final thesis, whatever it was, my final class, was a huge study of uh, the CHA, but in general public housing in the United States, and the reaction to the Kerner Commission, which was deafeningly silent. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then finally uh, I shared a piece uh, called The Logic of Masks, 
which is on police and Antifa and why people ma- wear masks. It's really good, too. It's time for listener feedback. Perita emailed us at Chuck at this is hell.com last week. And we want to read her email again as Perita actually wrote a book about This Is Hell. It's a stunning book. It's not very long, but I'm sure you would enjoy it. I'm, uh, Perita writes, Alex and Chuck, I'm working with a group called the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee here in town to organize a solidarity event for the upcoming national prison strike. That strike is set to take place from August 21st to September 9th of this year. The event that the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee is doing is going to be uh, the, uh, during the day from noon to 11 on Saturday, August 4th at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, which is located at 3219 South Morgan Street. The event is going to have speakers, music, letter writing, and t-shirts and posters that can be bought for fundraising, and that fundraising again will go towards the National Prison Strike, which is set to take place in late August. So if you want to participate in that, again, the event is going to be during the day, from noon to 11 on Saturday, August 4th at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, which is located at 3219 South Mission uh, Morgan Street. This is the place where Lumpen Radio is, where we are broadcast out of on Sunday mornings. So, uh, and Preeta, we're hoping to see you today at This Is Hell's anniversary party. Mike contacted us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Might you like a volunteer photographer for your party this weekend? That's today's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. Sure, Mike. Go nuts. Take pictures. See what I care. Uh, Cade wrote to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Hi, Chuck. Just finished listening to your interview with Catherine Nixie. Just wanted to let you know when your guests are phoning in, the sound quality is not good. Quite muffled and hard to understand. Sometimes is there anything that can be done to improve the sound? Really enjoy your show. Thanks, Cade from Australia. Yes, Catherine's line was lousy, and we hope to have better sound quality with our own new studio because we're not allowed to fix this one. It's owned by the station and the university, so we're not allowed to go tinker around in there. Unions would be very upset with us and probably the station because we would likely break it. But if it was ours and it was broke, we could fix it or break it too, but at least we could have a shot at fixing it. So that's why we have been raising money in order to get our own studio. Ben sent us a guest suggestion that may sound familiar on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is how radio. Ben writes, you guys should interview Boots Riley about Sorry to Bother You. That's Boots Riley's new movie, and it sound, and it looks like uh, that will actually be happening possibly, Ben. We're moved, taking great strides towards it, as Alex was just explaining. So, For you that do not know, Boots Riley's movie, Sorry to Bother You, is described as a science fiction comedy movie and was just released last week. And it stars Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Jermaine Fowler, Amari Hardwick, Terry Crews, Patton Oswalt, David Cross, Danny Glover, Stephen Yoon, and Army Hammer. Here's a synopsis from Wikipedia. And by the way, for you living up here in Evanston, it is playing over there on Maple, whatever the hell the name of those movie theaters is. So here's the synopsis they have. Set in Oakland, California, the film follows a young African-American telemarketer who adopts a white accent in order to thrive at the job. Once he does, he rapidly gets swept up into a conspiracy and must choose between making money at the expense of humanity or joining with his activist friends to organize labor. It also got a 95% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and we got a ton of people on social media helping us make that interview happen, so it is very possible that we will have boots on and real 
real soon. That's listener feedback. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is hell, and this week's question from hell is, what are you going... What? Hmm. What are we going to talk, be talking about on the show 22 years from now? What are we going to be talking about on the show 20 years, 22 years from now, 22 years from now? Our replies get right on air during, or right after our next guest, actually, uh, uh, here on This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the new tin This Is Hell coffee cup, which will also be available at the party. And who knows, maybe you can win one during this evening's raffle as well. Again, the question from Mel is, let's see if I can read it correctly this time. What are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio and listen during the third hour of this week's hell to hear all the responses and find out if you've won. Join us today. That's Saturday, July 21st for our third annual This Is Hell 20th anniversary and listener appreciation and uh, Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's today, Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge in Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and going till whenever. Not only are there gonna, is there going to be uh, art upstairs, there's music, there's food. Music begins at 4 p.m. with Pure Cane Duo featuring Ted Sirota and Dan Chase. Followed at 6 p.m. by Vivian Garcia. 8 p.m. it's Abraham Mellish with percussion by Chris Paquette. And wrapping up the night will be two sets from the band Craid at 10 p.m. and midnight. So we hope to see you all there today starting around 3 p.m. Saturday. Today is Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 225. West Devon. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Violence and Catastrophe are the only two ways inequality has ever been successfully addressed, which sucks because I really want more equality. Government surveillance is everywhere and it's growing faster and faster. And unless we do something about it, we'll have a mass surveillance system. Wait, yep, too late. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin returns to mourn the passing of a great life. That stuff plus question from hell. I'm telling you, we will get to rotten history. We want to thank a whole bunch of people for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Oh, I just dropped a note I wasn't supposed to drop. There it is. <laughs> I just dropped the note. I wasn't supposed to be dropping. There's only There are only a couple of ways that you can actually address inequality that have shown to be successful throughout human history. Unfortunately, those two ways are violence and catastrophe here to explain to us how we can, should, and have addressed equality in the past. Historian Walter Scheidel is author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Welcome to This Is Hell, Walter. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, we want to thank listener Tom again for not only suggesting an earlier guest on this week's show, Chris D. Thomas, but for also suggesting Walter as a guest on This Is Hell. And Tom, thanks for donating the zero euro notes featuring Karl Marx, which we will be raffling off during our all-day anniversary party today at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon. If you want to follow Walter on Twitter, just go to 
Walter Scheidel, S-C-H-E-I-D-E-L. Your book is an investigation into whether mass violence and catastrophes are the only forces that can seriously decrease economic inequality, that whenever economic inequality has decreased, it was due to violence or catastrophe. But can't can't we address inequality seriously and effectively with many of the things that are done, say, in European socialist nations where taxes are higher in order to provide for universal social services like Europe's universal health care or here in the past in the U.S. with the New Deal or the war on poverty. Don't these policies cause leveling without violence or catastrophe? Well, the short answer is, of course they do. And there are many policies that are proven to work in reducing economic inequality, but they don't exist in a vacuum. They are rooted in earlier developments. And that's exactly what I found in my historical survey, that whenever we see a major contraction of inequality, it is based on one or more of these violent shocks, mass mobilization, warfare, revolutions, state collapse, very severe epidemics. And that's certainly true of the 20th century as well. If you look at the rise of the welfare state in Europe or the New Deal, as you just mentioned, well, all of this is really concentrated in the period from World War I up to the end of World War II, beginning of the Cold War. You have these very serious dislocations that really transform society and have a huge impact on policymaking. And they make things possible that they might that might not have been viable, not have been feasible under different circumstances. So it's very different, difficult to separate uh, policy measures from uh, those other conditions. And they, unfortunately, tend to be uh, rather nasty ones in order to be really effective. So is real equality then uh, only equality that happens globally, that has a global impact rather than, as you were saying, uh, events that happen in a vacuum? Well, a lot, of course, is, is influenced by global events. If you think of globalization that has increased in the last few decades, automation, that affects all countries um, alike. So no nation can sort of exist in an island and separate itself from those developments. Other developments, of course, are more specific to individual societies, like the differences you observe between the U.S. and Europe, for instance, or East Asia uh, and Europe that are rooted in, in institutions in the long, deep uh, political and social history uh, of those countries. But a great deal is really global in scale. So even if we're interested in inequality, say, specifically in the United States right now, uh, we can't. We also have to look at what goes on elsewhere um, in the world because it's not an isolated development. You're right. Inequality is not created just by multi-billionaires. The richest 1% of the world's households now hold a little more than half of global uh, private net wealth. Inclusion of the assets that some of them control in offshore amounts would skew the distribution even further. Now, you also point out that in recent decades, income and wealth have become more unevenly distributed in Europe and North America and the former Soviet bloc and in China, India and elsewhere. So has inequality been globalized and, you know, with globalization, has inequality been globalized? And is it now an aspect of every part of all humans' lives? I think that's part of the answer, but it reaches even deeper because, once again, if you look at history in the longer term, inequality always used to be pretty high or had a tendency to rise, even before there was a modern economy, before there was a truly globalized economic system. But there seems to be something about concentration of income and wealth, it's very resilient. 
that tends to resurface under very different circumstances. It doesn't matter if you live in an agrarian society thousands of years ago or in the U.S. in the last few decades. Uh, the same trends can be observed all over the place. And that's certainly something that should give us pause um, and make us think hard about how to address these issues. If inequality is everywhere, why does it persist? I know this is a gigantic question, but what explains why it hasn't been addressed and, in fact, it's been growing for decades? Are we simply, uh, you know, missing a catastrophe? Do we? Is that why we have inequality still growing and we're not doing anything about it? We're just waiting for the next catastrophe? Well, uh, that might be a rather harsh answer, but maybe not entirely untrue. And of course, inequality, economic inequality, has very, very deep roots. It goes back thousands of years to the creation of agriculture and private property and inheritance and, you know, more capitalist forms of, of economic activity. And that's just uh, the way the world works and has worked for a very long time. And our societies, our economies are built around uh, those principles and premises. And that in itself makes it very difficult. Uh, to combat uh, inequality by peaceful means. And like I said, historically, it's usually been these very major violent, very nasty shocks that have made a real difference. And that, I think, poses a very serious challenge. How aware do you think the general public is of the degree to which there is inequality? How aware are we of how few there are that have so much? I think um, awareness has increased greatly over the last 10 years or so, which has a lot to do with the financial crisis, the Great Recession of 2007-8, the housing crisis. That's the first time when uh, the topic of rising economic inequality that had been discussed a lot already by economists uh, sort of went out into the public uh, domain. And you see a lot more discussions, a lot more uh, take up in the political discourse. If you think of the last presidential election, uh, people just talking much more about it and starting to, worrying, uh, to worry more about it. And the same is true in, in Europe, in China, in other parts of the globe. So this increased awareness is, is a fairly recent phenomenon. And it sort of lags behind the actual trend, which already started in the 70s and 80s. It lagged behind that trend from the 70s and 80s, but as you were saying, there is heightened awareness of it. So it, has there been a concomitant uh, heightened reaction to it, or are we still just kind of drifting along with increasing inequality? Uh, as far as I can see, nothing really concrete has happened. So there's a lot more talk, but uh, no implementation of really effective strategies, not in the U.S., uh, and not elsewhere. Even in Europe, even though rates of inequality are much lower than in the U.S., especially after taxes and transfers, the trend is up. It trends upwards somewhat slowly than in the U.S. or other English-speaking countries, but it's certainly present. And it goes up rapidly in places like China uh, or India or other very populous nations in East Asia. So you could, of course, argue that being aware of the problem and talking more about it is a vital first step that will then... Uh, lead to effective uh, programs and policy measures, but that's by no means a given. That's an optimistic uh, view, which I would like to uh, share, but I'm not really sure I do. And you point out that the United States may be losing out to China when it comes to inequality. Now, China now said to be home to an even larger number of dollar billionaires, despite its considerably smaller nominal GDP. So what does that reveal to you about both the U.S. and Chinese economic systems when one is said to be a, you know, uh, 
capitalist country and the other is said to be a communist and soon to be a socialist state. What does it say to you when those two supposedly uh, antithetic uh, economic systems, uh, economic systems that are anathema to each each other, what does it say to you when they both are leading at the very top of rampant inequality? Well, you could say it's a process of convergence in the sense that China is no longer as socialist, but alone communist, uh, than it was several um, decades ago. Of course, under Mao, China was really uh, equal and egalitarian. It wasn't a great place to live for most people, uh, but it was certainly less unequal in economic terms than it is now. And the farther countries like China or India move in the direction of the standard capitalist model that is that you see in the U.S., uh, in Western Europe, uh, the higher inequality is going to rise. And that's exactly what we see in China. It's partly a function of economic development that more and more people move to the cities and they earn higher incomes than people in the countryside. And that um, increases inequality overall. But as you said, at the very top, uh, you see the creation of hundreds and hundreds of new billionaires and multi-billionaires. And that's very much a symptom uh, of being part of the capitalist world system. Does inequality always beget greater inequality? Is that, is that the kind of trajectory that inequality is on right now, one that is exponentially growing mm-hmm. and that inequality causes the exponential growth of inequality? Well, there seems to be a trend historically for inequality, if it's at all possible, to keep on rising. Not exponentially, but at least at a certain rate. If you look at the long 19th century, a 100 years of peace, uh, in the Western world, you see a great deal of economic development, development overall, but also gradually, slowly increasing economic inequality in terms of the distribution of income and wealth. And you could argue that we are now in the early stages, arguably, of a similar phase of incre- gradually but steadily increasing economic inequality. At least all the indicators, all the metrics we have point in that direction. So does the globalization of inequality, if you will, reveal some commonality among all people everywhere that we have something cultural in common? Or is it more that uh, we've had imposed upon us a system uh, that has led to this kind of global economy, led by a global economic uh, Mm. mechanisms that are imposed on us, not just something culturally about us? I think it's both, in a sense, it's not just specifically cultural, because similar things, as I said, happened in the more distant past when there was no global capitalism, and yet you observe similar trends uh, over time. That's what I meant uh, when I referred to the resilience of inequality. It's something that comes up time and again under very different circumstances. And in that sense, the current globalized uh, capitalist version of inequality is simply the most recent iteration, uh, the most recent manifestation of this uh, very, very uh, long-term trend. But that's, of course, the one that we have to deal with right now. And you're right that we still lack a proper sense of the big picture, a global survey that covers the broad sweep of observable history across cultural, comparative, and long-term perspective is essential for our understanding of the mechanisms that have shaped the distribution of income and wealth. So what explains why we haven't had this kind of examination if this topic uh, has caught so much attention, including the highest levels of the U.S. government, at least when Mm. Barack Obama was president, not that he did much Mm -hmm. about it, but he did speak out against inequality. So what explains why we are not having this kind of reexamination if this is a topic of such importance? Why don't we have this global perspective? 
I believe we are getting there. I mean, that's certainly the trend that has been a trend over the last few years. And the kind of book that I wrote, reaching back really far in time and trying to take a global approach, simply wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago because people had not yet done uh, the detailed work, the detailed case studies, the analysis, are uh, drawing on very diverse sets of data uh, and sources all over the place. And that's, uh, that's the kind of work that is currently being done in response to this increase in public interest and public concerns uh, about rising inequality. So I think in that regard, we are on the right trajectory. trajectory. We're certainly moving um, in that direction, but it's not something that can be done uh, overnight. But if you just look at what has happened in the last five or 10 years, uh, there's a great deal of work um, ongoing that tries to do exactly that, what you said, to really uh, give us a, a truly broad, deep, global, uh, and also historical assessment of what the root causes of inequality are, the underlying dynamics, and what can be done about it. And on that history of inequality, you write that growing and persistent inequality became a defining feature of the Holocene era. The domestication of plants and animals mm. made it possible to accumulate and preserve productive resources. Uh, social norms evolved to define rights to these assets, including the ability to pass them on to future generations. So is human history then a history of, more than anything, inequality? That's certainly true. You would have to go back to the hunter-gatherers who were very poor and mobile and didn't own much and didn't have institutions of property rights or inheritance to find very small societies that were truly egalitarian. And even there, you find certain exceptions. So there's something uh, in human nature almost uh, that seems to push us in that um, direction. There have always been countervailing forces as well. But the underlying trend now for 10,000 years, quite literally, in some parts of the globe, has been to shore up economic inequality. Well, I should say, though, that's only part of the story, because there are other types of inequality, too. If you think of gender inequality or racial inequality, more archaic forms of inequality that we have been quite successful in at least reducing, not entirely obliterating, but certainly reducing. So it seems for some reason to be easier to combat these other types of inequality than economic inequality, because economic inequality tends to always come back regardless of what kind of economic system is in place. We were recently speaking with an anthropologist whose name, Jason Hicks, uh, Jason Hickel. Uh, we uh, were recently speaking with an anthropologist by the name of Jason Hickel, and he was telling us about how inequality is spread by the way in which we see development and aid in the way that it's applied around the world. In reaction to that interview, we had a listener post on social media that there's no sense in addressing inequality because inequality has always existed. You point out in your book that inequality has always existed. So does that make it pointless in addressing inequality because it has always existed? Uh, Not really. And that was actually part of the reaction I got to my book, especially from the right side, right end of the political spectrum, people saying, well, you know, Scheibel shows it's really difficult to reduce inequality and it may take violent means to do so. So we shouldn't really worry about it. Right. I mean, there's nothing that can be done that anybody would like to do. So we just move on and focus on other issues. And that's certainly not uh, the lesson of history. The lesson is we have to be aware that it's really hard. It's not enough to say, let's do what we did 50 years ago. Let's have really high taxes and strong unions and much more regulation in certain uh, sectors of the economy. Yes, that would help. But those things only worked at the time. 
because of very specific preconditions, World War II, Cold War, Great Depression, New Deal, uh, all these various things. And it's not very plausible, not very realistic to expect them to work in the same way uh, right now. So what I'm saying is uh, it's not hopeless. There are certainly ways of reducing inequality. And yes, we should be concerned about it. We just have to think much harder about what might actually work right now as opposed to what worked 50 years um, ago. So if human history is a history of inequality, is human history also a history of fighting against and trying to overcome inequality? That is absolutely true. It's just that for most of history, the people fighting inequality actively usually lost out because they were not sufficiently well organized, they were not sufficiently powerful, and when inequality did go down, it went down as as a byproduct almost of much more cataclysmic events that nobody really wanted, like very big wars, uh, the collapse of states, and so on. It, it's not really till the 20th century that uh, the, the deliberate fight against inequality, as you see in the communist revolutions, for instance, or in a more moderate way, and in socialist uh, or labor movements in Europe and in the West more generally, uh, that this fight uh, becomes uh, sort of a deliberate uh, policy goal and begins to be uh, more successful. But it was successful in large part only because the time was right. It wasn't just right in terms of overall development, industrialization, mass education, spread of democracy. It was also right because of these violent shocks that uh, sustained, supported this fight against inequality in quite a spectacular way in many cases. You write that the formation of states as a highly competitive form of organized or organization established steep hierarchies of power and coercive force that skewed access to income and wealth. Is inequality then the foundation of the state? Is the state stronger as inequality grows? Is the hierarchy more and more powerful at the top and stratified at every level as inequality grows and the state becomes more powerful? It tends to have that effect. Of course, if you look at more distant history, it used to be more overt, more blatant, that the rich and the powerful were either the same group of people or they were very closely allied, and the state was a vehicle of of physicalization, of keeping most people down and enriching the few at the top. This, at least in some parts of the world, has changed uh, over the last 100 or 200 years or so, uh, but only up to a point. Uh, So states are still built on stratification, on hierarchy, on concentration of power. And even if they are formally democracies, it doesn't seem to make an enormous uh, difference, because even in democracies, there are ways uh, for the rich uh, to exercise disproportionate influence on the political process, as we certainly see uh, in the U.S. uh, today. And that means that even though in an attenuated form, states still tend to uh, preserve, if not in some cases, actively promote uh, inequality by protecting property rights, uh, by um, uh, making it it feasible, easy uh, for people to accumulate uh, large fortunes and so on. Does inequality always find a way, and if that's the case, that inequality is the inevitable outcome of every system we've tried so far, what does that say about the ability for humans to make a good system? Uh, well, I mean, 
an economist would say inequality is tied up with economic development, right? If you want economic development, if you want growing average per capita GDP and all these things, you may have to accept a certain degree of inequality. The question is just how much. Um, it seems very difficult to, to separate, to disentangle uh, those two things, to disentangle development from inequality. So in that sense, you could say, no, we haven't actually managed to come up with a system that delivers the goods without uh, tending to raise inequality at the same time. And that makes the whole issue uh, so complicated. You write that only specific types of violence have consistently forced down inequality. Most wars did not have any systematic effect on the distribution of resources. For war-to-level disparities in income and wealth, it needed to penetrate society as a whole to mobilize people and resources on a scale that was often only feasible in modern nation states. This explains why the two world wars were among the greatest levelers in history. The physical destruction wrought by industrial-scale warfare, uh, conf- confiscatory um, confisc- uh, taxation, government intervention in the economy, inflation, disruption to global flows of goods and capital, and other for- factors all combined to wipe out elites' wealth and distributive uh, resources. So, is war as a leveler something that is new? And what does that either say about war today or about our world today that war has become a leveler? Well, it seems it became a leveler for a limited period of time, not in more distant history, because war would favor uh, the rulers, the leadership on the winning side and, and harm those on the losing side. That's what you see in the Civil War, for instance, when the slaves were freed and rich people in the South uh, ended up being poorer and people in the North ended up being richer because of the many millionaires created uh, by the war. What happened in World War I and World War II was very special because you have industrialization, you have the nation state, you have the franchise, uh, you have mass mobilization, unprecedented scale, and that made it possible, really compelled uh, very uh, far-reaching reforms in terms of, as you said, taxation, regulation, unionization, uh, any number of things. But that period may actually be over, uh, partly because of technological change. If we had another world war today, which I'm sure nobody really wants, it would probably be fought very differently. It would be a more cyber-oriented war uh, involving much more IT. It wouldn't involve armies of millions. It might not go on for several years, as the earlier wars did. It might very well have very different uh, effects on the distribution of income and wealth. So it may well be that the great compression we see in World War One, World War Two, uh, was historically contingent. It only worked in a specific window um, of opportunity. So but you shouldn't really wait to find out because you know you're not going to have another war just to see if it works again. Yes, exactly. I hope not. At least is the degree of violence that is needed to bring about equality, is that constantly growing? Does the level of violence needed to bring about equality, uh, does that increase as the level of inequality grows? Um, it, it almost seems to be. I mean, the, the most effective communist revolutions were also the most violent ones, right? Lenin, Stalin, Mao, tens of millions of people killed. That worked really well in reducing inequality. It was otherwise, of course, a rather undesirable outcome. World War One, World War Two were existential threats to nations uh, that really shook things up. So in that sense, you could say, yes, the scale of violence is meaningfully correlated to the effect uh, it has on um, inequality. And of course, the current world system is pretty stable. 
So you could make a pretty good case, I think, that in order to really shake things up again, it would take a lot of effort. Something really, really dramatic would have to happen uh, to have that result. And that, of course, is inherently um, undesirable. And I should say, as far as we can tell, not very likely um, to happen. It's not terribly likely that we're going to have a big mass mobilization war or another communist revolution or state collapse or another black death in the foreseeable future. We can't rule it out but it doesn't really seem to be on the horizon. So that's good news, but it also means that if we are concerned about rising inequality, we have to really think hard about how to develop alternative strategies. And in this case, history isn't terribly helpful because that's not something that has really happened all that much in the past. So we are, in a sense, on our own. You're right, although everybody might suffer when states unraveled. The rich simply had much more to lose. Declining or collapsing elite income and wealth compressed the overall distribution of resources. This has happened for as long as there have been states. So is leveling then always bad for everyone but worse for the richest because they have the most to lose? Does leveling ever lift the poorest only or does it only bring down the wealthiest to the level of the poorest? Historically, it's usually the case that everybody suffers, but the rich suffer the most because they have the most to lose in many of those scenarios. It's very rare for conditions to improve and inequality below will be going down at the same time. And that's basically what we see in the post-war period in the 50s, 60s, maybe into the 70s, where you have strong economic growth. Everybody is better off, uh, but the middle classes in particular gain at least as much, if not more, uh, than the people at the top. And at the same time, household income goes up, education goes up. These, this is the kind of scenario that we look back at now and say, why can't things be, still be that way? That was, in a way, an ideal outcome. But that may very well have been contingent on these massive violent shocks in the preceding 30 years. And none of those things would have happened, arguably, in the same way had those shocks not occurred before. So again, it is very difficult to separate um, those, those, those forces. But that would suggest, then, that the wealthy would be fighting for equality, as increasing inequality would seem provocative and likely to lead to some level of leveling. So why would those benefiting from e- inequality, why wouldn't there be more people like, you know, whoever, billionaire you mm-hmm. want to mention, who donates tons of uh, money to causes fighting for equality to stabilize a system from which they unequally benefit? Why would they not be making it a priority to the, for the people who benefit from inequality to do as much as they can to undermine or to uh, promote equality to stabilize the system from which they benefit? Well, maybe the rich know their history because even though there is a link between uh, certain types of violence and equalization, it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. There doesn't seem to be a systematic relationship between rising inequality and an increased likelihood of you know, social upheaval, war, breakdown, uh, any number of things that could eventually hurt uh, the rich. It happens sometimes, think of the French Revolution, for instance, but it doesn't happen systematically. So if I were rich and sufficiently cynical, I would look at history and say, I don't necessarily have to worry all that much about it. It's not really proven that inequality in and of itself sufficiently destabilizes societies to harm me, the rich guy, anytime soon. So what explains why we haven't been able to achieve some sort of nonviolent equalization? 
Well, we have, in a way. I mean, we uh, we have um, a, a welfare state. We have a state. We have a great deal of redistribution. The system is certainly working. If you, to some extent, if you compare income inequality before and after tax and transfers, there is a big difference. Uh, especially in Western countries, most notably in Europe, but also uh, to some extent in the U.S. So we have a system in place and have had it for some time that makes a very real difference. It just turns out it doesn't make enough of a difference. It's not powerful enough to fully absorb uh, the the underlying trend towards uh, growing inequality that's driven by any number of things, globalization, technological change, and so on. So we have a system that works, but it works imperfectly. And we have the sense that mass mobilization can address inequality. You write that leveling by means of mass mobilization, warfare, and transformative revolution has primarily been a feature of modernity. The Great Compression, as you were mentioning earlier, of the 1910s and 1940s, not only produced by far the best evidence of this process, but also represents and indeed constitutes it in paradigmatic form. Do we have a sense, even an exaggerated or misguided sense, that mass mobilization is what makes change? Because in our recent history, mass mobilization has made change and challenge inequality, even if historically that is not how how equality has been addressed in the past. Our recent uh, successful challenges to inequality anomalies, and we think that those anomalies are really foundations of history when it comes to addressing inequality. I think that's true because inequality does affect the mass of people. So if you really want to change things, you have to mobilize them, right? You have to get them organized one way or another in order to bring about uh, effective change in that in that uh, direction. And that's very, very difficult to do. Even in modern societies, that's very difficult to do. And historically, it worked best in the context of, you know, interstate war. Um, it would be nice if there were alternative, more peaceful ways of mobilizing, organizing uh, people in the same way to to create similar results. But again, historically, that doesn't really seem to be um, the case, and it doesn't seem terribly likely in the foreseeable future either. And you know, you would you would think that the American dream, the rags to riches story would suggest that we are culturally, or even from our very founding documents, that the United States would be very, very pro-equality. Why isn't the U.S. uniquely pro-equality, uniquely anti-inequality, when we embrace this idea of the American dream and rags-to-riches stories? I think uh, that uh, Rex to Riches stories is part of the answer because it really foregrounds individualism, right? And the more you focus on the individual, the less you should worry about inequality or equality, and the more you should worry about or be interested in how to get ahead, how to succeed on your own or for your um, family. Another part of the answer seems to be that the U.S. has always been very uh, diverse, very heterogeneous. It's a nation of immigrants. And it seems that the more heterogeneity you get in terms of ethnic makeup uh, and so on, the less support there is on average uh, for uh, redistributive programs, for instance, because people don't necessarily want others who are not quite like them uh, to benefit from those uh, taxes and transfers. That's one of the reasons why it was much easier in Europe, for instance, in more homogenous countries to build up high-level welfare states than it ever was um, in the U.S. So there are multiple reasons that really account for the fact that the U.S. is one of the leaders in inequality and has been for quite some time.
To what degree do you think uh, income polarization, the kind of inequality we are seeing right now, is a factor in creating what many in the West, in the UK, in the US, see as political polarization? Is there a relationship between inequality and political polarization? Statistically, uh, there is. So if you look at the evidence from, say, how people vote in Congress and in the various metrics, the more polarized the political system is, the higher economic inequality is as well. And there seems to be a pretty regular relationship there. And again, it's kind of easy to understand why that would be, because the more polarized the political process is, the more difficult it becomes to agree on far-reaching reform on programs that would really make a difference, right? It's harder to get things done. Um, and as a result, uh, the fight against inequality uh, in terms of policymaking becomes even more difficult than it already is. So yes, there seems to be a real meaningful relationship between those two trends. And you write about affluent neighborhoods in particular have become more isolated, yes. uh, development likely to precipitate concentration of resources, including locally funded public services, which in turn affects the life chances of children and impedes intergenerational mobility. Does that uh, affluent isolation inadvertently provoke the kind of violence that leads to a leveling effect? Well, it might even, well, in a sense, it, it blocks it because if people self-segregate residentially in terms of education and who they meet and whom they marry eventually, uh, it means they're just more separate from other socioeconomic groups. And that can, of course, um, stir up resentment, um, understandably. But it necessarily leads to a, a greater level of violence. That's something that remains to be seen. I hope not. Um, but I think it's simply too soon um, to tell. But as far as I know, there is no real evidence for that at this point. Is, the, is inequality unsustainable? Is there a sustainable level of inequality? Uh, it seems so, because uh, prior to World War One, you had pretty high, often fairly stable levels of inequality in many Western countries for about 100 years or so. And even though at the same time massive changes took place in the economy, in politics, in society, so it seems that high levels of inequality are not just sustainable, they may even be a bit of a default condition of, of civilized societies. And that's that's worrying, of course, but it seems there's a bit of a trade-off between stability on the one hand and uh, economic development and inequality on the other. So yes, I do believe, and the historical record certainly supports that notion, that there is sustainable inequality, and it can, in fact, be quite high. Inequality, it seems, within the conversations here in the United States, has been normalized. To what degree is this level of inequality that we are witnessing today normal when we look at human history or just the last couple of hundred years of American history? Well, in terms of income inequality, we're almost back to where we were before 1929, uh, before the the crash and the Great Depression. So in that sense, these levels used to be normal in the Gilded Age, for instance, 100 years ago. Um, uh, They certainly used to be normal in many European countries. European countries had much higher levels of inequality in the past than they do now, even Britain, certainly in continental Europe, Japan did. Um, So in that sense, high inequality really does seem to be fairly normal, uh, for want of a better word. And that doesn't make it all that surprising then that it is, as you say, becoming normalized, because perhaps what happened the last 50 years or so was, was the great aberration, and high inequality tends to be the norm. Compared to past economic system, 
systems? Uh, how well is our current economic system prepared to fight inequality and to do so nonviolently? I think on the one hand, it's well prepared because it rests on mass education and at least formal empowerment of large segments of the population. So in that sense, you could expect there to be inputs in favor of reduced inequality. At the same time, once you have the kind of capitalist world system we operate in today, uh, it does generate disproportionate rewards for people uh, at the very top who have very specific skills, who are mobile, who can tap into those opportunities that are available uh, around the globe. If you think of the finance sector, IT sector, um, um, other uh, uh, specialized uh, sectors of the economy. Um, so in a sense, the current system does both. It should favor uh, the masses, so to speak, to some extent, but de facto, it also gives a big leg up to people who are very well positioned to take advantage, to make the most of the opportunities created by the system. We have been speaking with historian Walter Scheidel. He is author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. You can follow Walter on Twitter at Walter Scheidel. And I want to thank This Is Hell listener Tom again for not only suggesting an earlier guest on this week's show, Christy Thomas, but also for suggesting Walter as a guest on This Is Hell. And Tom, thanks for donating the zero euro notes featuring Karl Marx, which we will be raffling off during our all-day anniversary party happening today at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Walter, one last question for you, and it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. If leveling is always the outcome of catastrophe or violence, if the fight against inequality, the fight for equality is always at its most successful, the outcome of catastrophe or violence, should people who want equality be careful of what they're wishing for? We should be careful, but that doesn't mean we should give up. We simply have to work harder, think harder, be more original, revisit uh, the record, and figure out better ways of addressing this issue. We have to be aware it's really hard. That's not defeatism. It's a real challenge and one that we have to confront. Walter, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Again, thanks to Tom for suggesting Walter as a guest. Really a fascinating conversation, and so I'm so glad that you could make it on our show this week. Thank you very much, and let me give you a prediction. 22 years from now, people will still be talking about inequality. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a rock-solid one right there. Thank you so much, Walter. Thank you. You may have just won the question from hell. Who knows? I'll send you a prize. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. We're always being watched legally in ways we are completely unaware of and would likely not approve. And it's going to get worse, a lot worse, unless we do something about it, and fast. We'll find out how bad mass surveillance is in a few when we talk to journalist Sarus Faravar, author of Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. Sarus is the senior business editor at Ars Technica. And now I'm going to let Alex take over for a second because I'm having some technical difficulties. Hey, everybody. While Chuck runs to the bathroom to deal with his technical difficulties, I just want to uh, give one more plug for the party at Carrie's Lounge tonight. It's going to be really fun if uh, you have not come out to Carrie's Lounge for office hours, which you do every Wednesday from 6 to 9. It's going to be fun at the party. Um, and also, Chuck doesn't know this because... I didn't tell him this. Uh, me and my wife bought a cake for the show, 
And after much deliberation on what to get written on the cake, because that's always the most fun thing, we went with Everybody's Stupid. So that'll be on... Uh, I'll be posting photos of the cake as soon as we have that, uh, that we pick up from the grocery store, and then we'll be bringing that to the bar tonight at Carrie's Lounge. Um, I tried to persuade my wife to ask the people at the cake place to uh, do... My demon is on my butt, but she said, uh, if you want that to happen, you're going to have to go to Jewel yourself and get them to do that. And I was busy, so uh, we'll be fine with the cake that just says, everybody's stupid. So come to Carrie's Lounge, 2251. Is it 2251 or 2259? One of those two. It's got the sign up front that says Carrie's Lounge on it. And uh, you'll be able to have all the things that Chuck has been plugging on the show, as well as a cake uh, with the words, everybody's stupid, right across the top. Don't tell Chuck. Here he is. <laughs> you can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. If you become a regular Patreon supporter, not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell advertising stickers, but you also have access to special perks, including every week getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 20-plus years of on-air conversations selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon patrons. And in the future, you'll get additional bonus gifts as well at thisishell.com by clicking on support. Become a Patreon patron right now by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. Yes, sir? Hey, uh, also, everyone on Patreon, one thing I do for people who don't even, who pledge any amount, not just the $4 to get their regular podcast, is put out a, every two weeks I put out a bonus podcast of just something old we unearthed from the vault. And if you... Liked what Chuck was talking about earlier when he was talking about having uh, Wesley Willis on the program. I found that episode thanks to producer Richard. So when I actually get home in celebration for Chuck, this is Hell's 22nd birthday, I'm going to be posting that interview from, was it 97? I think it was like, yeah, 97. So I'll be posting uh, the interview with uh, Wesley Willis in studio. Uh, it is uh, it is a hoot. On this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to at patreon.com slash this is hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. This week, we posted an interview we did with political scientist and sociologist Francis Fox Piven back on November 29th, 2008, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president of the United States for the very first time. Francis had just posted an article at The Nation entitled, Obama Needs a Protest Movement. And boy, did he. But he didn't get one. What Francis argued and what proved to be true was that Barack Obama would be a centrist conciliator, that he would not energize a movement to push him toward more progressive goals. Instead, all of that energy for winning the election would be lost, lost by a Democratic Party, fearing a social movement pushing it to the left. Francis explained how populism was co-opted by corporate interests dating back to Reagan, if you want to hear how everything could have been way different and way better if the Democrats hadn't screwed up again like they do on a regular basis. Sign up now on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thisishell and show your support for This Is Hell and listen to our exclusive podcasts only for our Patreon supporters. But the only way you can hear that interview is by signing up as a Patreon patron by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. And did you share anything else this week or not? You're just going to be sharing the Wesley Wilson. Uh, yeah, that one's a, so every two weeks I post one uh, just for any subscriber level and that one's going up uh, when I get home. Yeah, uh, it really was a spectacular day having Wesley standing in front of me and playing piano the entire time. We want to thank those who have already signed up as Patreon's 
supporters because with your help, we'll finally get our studio up and running, thereby allowing us to give you more This Is Hell throughout the week, as well as rebuild our 21-plus year archive of shows. And we will have the studios open to the public during our third annual 20th anniversary party happening today, July 21st, Saturday, July 21st. There is going to be food, music, art, and prizes as well. And we will be showing off some new This Is Hell gifts with our new logo. And we'll be showing those off upstairs in the new interview booth, which is not quite finished. But we hope to have running by football season in early September when This Is Hell is often abbreviated or preempted by sports programming. Having our own studios is yet another way we can get more hell to you all year round, even during football season so if you want to show your support and uh, have us show our support for you as listeners of this is hell join us during the third annual 20th anniversary party for this is hell happening today saturday july 21st beginning at 3 p.m and going till whenever at carrie's lounge and second story studios 2251 west devon we want to thank the people who did sign up to patreon this week at patreon.com slash this is hell thanks to robert eleanor Cody and Chris, you can join them and another 258 listeners in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at uh, patreon.com slash thisishell. And we really need your support now with football season fast approaching, soundproofing, being next, maintenance, phone and internet bills that just skyrocketed skyrocketed because we've got to get landlines to secure better phone connections as one of our listeners was suggesting what we do, Kate in uh, Australia. And uh, we got to, you know, pay off our programmers for working on the archives. All of that is quickly adding up, so show your support, and you can support us via Patreon. Get an additional podcast every week, subvertising lower donation levels for free gifts. Go to patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash thisishell on next week's Patreon podcast. So we'll be posting this in midweek. It's not about much. It's only about all of history. Ever. We'll be playing our October 20th, 2007 conversation with historian Cynthia Stokes Brown, author of Big History, From the Big Bang to the Present. So we'll be covering a lot of ground. If you're not familiar with the concept of big history, sign up at patreon.com slash this is hell to find out what it's all about. And if you are familiar uh, with big history, then you'll want to hear this interview with Cynthia because she is one of the pioneers of the subject. But again, you can only hear that if you subscribe to us via Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment. Corporate mainstream media, show your support by joining us at patreon.com slash thisishell. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? What are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Past guest who was just on, Walter Scheidel, says we'll be talking about inequality because we'll always be talking about inequality. All replies get read on air right now. Our favorite wins the new tin This Is Hell coffee cup, which is also going to be available at the party today. And who knows, maybe you will win one during this evening's raffle. Again, the question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio right now and you still may get a chance to win Alex you have all the answers to this week's question from hell this week's question from hell is this is hell was started 22 years ago what are we going to be talking about from the sh- on the show 22 years from now Ronaldo M says where to find drinkable water at affordable prices 
Wally R says, the latest cave paintings by Banksy. <laughs> Bert H says, yoga, does it make people tastier? Cannibal Chuck weighs in. McDonald's fully automated kiosks brought down by ice cream machine virus. Does labor have a chance of creeping back into fast food? John K says, PP tape. <laughs> I know some people who will still be talking about that from 22 years from now. Caitlin, K- Caitlin C says, the new Midwestern coastline. John K says, Trump. <laughs> what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Stephen P says, the ocean's declining phytoplankton population. Got oxygen? Joshua L. says, How Elon Musk and other billionaires left us behind for Elysium, which is Mars. Jason L. says, Sorry, fellas, but there will be no more show. Just whispers of an uprising over another choked-down protein block meal on the Snowpiercer caboose. (laughs) Dennis H. says, About how terrible everything is, but at least weed is legal. (laughs) Alexandra C. says, The good old days. Mark R says, how much better things are since we ate the rich. (laughs) What are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Miguel N says, 2040, the secret wisdom messages encoded in Kyber Disney Fox's Science of Numerology Silk Road Ride. (laughs) Maker K says, pretty much all the same stuff, but in Mandarin. (laughs) Andrew F. Oh, I used to work with that guy. Says, discussion about refugees resettlement from Florida, the Bayou, and NYC. (laughs) Nick A. says, whatever Lord Bezos and Lord Musk want us to talk about. <laughs> Eric R. says, all of President Ivanka's hashtag winning or else MFR. Michael D. says, I forget. What are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Ben L. says, Russian collusion and the fact that Michigan makes uh, the, the and the fact that Michigan feels like the tropics. So, yep, global warming. Robert H. says, an interview with the floating head of Noam Chomsky, but all you hear is bubbles and vocal fry. The hangover cure is water, if you can find any. And Chuck finally gets to twist off knowledge, but the only remaining listener is a dog made sentient by radioactive waste. (laughs) What are we going to be talking about on the show? 22 years from now, Jacob P. says, Elon Musk's uh, Tagenda, the rules and guidelines for making a Mars-approved existence, and also not to be tasteless, but... I will work for brand new This Is Hell campaign mug. <laughs> Curly B says the rising price of pot, the grape melon, banana mado, and the apricornicot, <laughs> and anything else uh, Monsanto made seedless so they can sue you for growing it. <laughs> Sebastian M says how to turn football pads, feathers, and automotive parts into body armor. <laughs> Jack B says the 2016 election. <laughs> Similarly, Aaron B says whether or not Jill Stein cost the Democrats the 2016 election. Uh, that was uh, Aaron B. And the first one was a uh, Jack B. Uh, what we'll be talking about on the show 22 years from now. Mark A says Mason jars rate higher than Amazon brain jars on Yelp. Stephen S says new, new New York and old, old <laughs> Chicago pizza rivalry continues with Chicago taking the lead. Because amidst post-nuclear waste, Chicago has found a crust edge from a tavern-style pizza, while New York still has only those fake-ass mushrooms from a can. John S. says how the new Soylent doesn't taste so bad when you put a little salt on it. (laughs) What are we going to talk about on the show 22 years from now? Pete B. says at the current rate of social decline, you'll have been censored. Scott P. says the same depressing crap you talked about for the first 22 years. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, that was Scott P. <laughs> Adam D. says, seems like another scorcher. Colin J. says, <laughs> uh, 
Which of us gets a break from toiling in the Bezos Foundation marijuana plantation to work indoors for a change, cranking the generator that makes it possible for us to access content? <laughs> Charles E. says, In 22 years? How life is no longer hell after the global revolution. Every episode will be a retrospective. This was hell. <laughs> Lawrence C. says, Whatever happened to Chuck will be the week's question. <laughs> Mark A. says, Counterfeit $500 bills. Brian M. says, special guest Ken Nordine will be saying, you're getting old, Chuck. <laughs> Michael W. says, nothing. As U.S. President, Chuck will be too busy to continue doing his radio show. It was a trick question. <laughs> Jamie M. says, if you somehow win a golden ticket on Musk Mars, then may, which I think is Musk Mars, then you may be playing a never-ending loop of praise Elon, praise the sun on the show. <laughs> if you don't win the ticket, you'll be ironically enjoying your time on a place reminiscent of your show's title. Gideon L. says, special coverage of the 2040 election debate between Donald Trump Jr. and Chelsea Clinton. Uh, Josh J. says, who killed President Chuck? <laughs> what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Jeffy D. says, will Emperor Baron Von Trump open the dome to allow us some sunshine today? And will we ever find out if it was he who poisoned his father's borscht so he could take the throne? And how did all his half-siblings really die? <laughs> Marie K. says, I'd like to believe it would be which homeless plan is most ethical, but it's still going to be whose fault climate change is. Uh. Madeline E. says, show has, been, uh, has long since been rebranded to This Is Cell, the premier long-form interview radio show for the unicellular organisms that now rule the planet. <laughs> Gorilla G. says, how much danker the weed is. Oh yeah, plus <laughs> reminiscing about how cheap it used to be. Camillo P. says, Soylent Green production is at an all-time high, but there's a sociology professor from CUNY asking, where did producer Chuck and the original host of the show go? Louis D. says, how is prison? Did they let you use your walker in the cell block? <laughs> Warnell says, the conspiracy to keep hydrogen prices so high. Effing fat cats. John M. posted something completely in Chinese. But I'm not going to, to translate. do anything problem. Uh, uh, he there's a phonetic English that I'm not going to get in trouble for trying to read. So uh, let me run that through the translator when I can and see what we pop up. All right. um, also, Andrew T says, since you all be dead, this is heaven. What are we talking about on the show? 22 years from now, Adam M says the most wonderful new technology you can't even imagine yet. Matt M says <laughs> this is hell available in liquid form. One slip, one sip and a full episode fed directly to your brain. Try all six flavors and be sure to try the new This Is Hell Light, half the calories, half the angst, half the hell available via Patreon. And finally, Eric T said, <laughs> this is a good one, Eric. This is Hell's 44th anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge. <laughs> all right, let me run this thing through a translator while you give us your favorites. All right, uh, let's see. I really, well, first of all, let me tell you how I would respond. My response to the question from Hell, what are we going to be talking about on the show 22 years from now? Considering how old I will be, I'm pretty sure we'll be talking about that damn kid who won't get off my lawn. All right, let's see. Oh, I ran it through the translator. And? So uh, John M's comment is, the podcast will use Chinese completely because English will be declared a dead language. Oh, and then we also got uh, one more response via Twitter. I'll let me pull that up. Clickety-click, click, click. How is it not auto-completing? Okay. Um, this is from our old friend EatFarts69, and he said, Skynet. And then he posted a link to the fact that uh, Skynet appears in 2029, 20, but then he retracted it by saying, oh man, I retract. 
I'm a little hung I'm a little too hungover and I did my math wrong because it's gonna be twenty forty, not twenty nine. So uh sorry, eat farts six nine, you have to wait a little bit longer. So my favorite responses were John Kay saying that uh, what will we be talking about here on This Is Hell twenty two years from now? John Kay saying Trump, Alexandra C saying the good old days. Which I really like. Uh, Maker K saying uh, that we'll be talking in Mandarin. Uh, Jack B saying we'll be talking about 2016. And Aaron B saying that we're going to be talking about whether J- uh, Jill Stein cost the t- uh, Democrats the 2016 election. I do like Eric T's uh, the 44th anniversary of This Is Hell. But I'm going to go with Alexandra C. and the good old days. That was such a great response to this week's question from Hell. Again, which is, what are we going to be talking about on uh, This Is Hell 22 years from now? We're going to be talking about the good old days, according to Alexandra C. This Is Hell office hours happen this and every week, every Wednesday, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs in the This Is Hell office, and soon our studio as well. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, uh, you know, and I want to thank the people who did drop by this week from 6 to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, when we do have our weekly meet and greet, think and drink, whatever you want to call it. I want to thank the people who dropped by this past Wednesday, Chris, for coming in from Naperville, Dan, who is no longer from Rockford, but Rogers Park, and like me, doesn't believe there's free parking at Devon Bank after business hours. Maybe there is, and maybe if you come to the party tonight and you go over to Devon Bank uh, by our Arthur and Western, one block north of Western or of Devon Avenue. Maybe there is free parking there after business hours. I don't know. I don't believe it. Neither does Dan, listener Dan. Stephen and I believe his friend, uh, his name was Laura. I want to thank them for dropping by. Uh, I got confused about uh, Laura's name because my girlfriend's name is Laura, and I wrote down Laura, and I wrote it down twice. So maybe her name was Laura. I apologize for forgetting. It's been driving me crazy. So, Laura and Steven, if your name is Laura, uh, please come to the party today and tell me if I got Laura's name right or wrong. Thanks to John, producer Alex, my Laura, Theron, who is building our new studio, and I cannot thank him enough. Thanks to Shankar and the newest member of the This Is Hell crew, Leo, and everyone else I can't remember because, you know drinking. And you can talk me up and get free books and stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Join us today, Saturday, July 21st, though, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show, also featuring live music. That's today, Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m., lasting until whenever. Here's what we will be raffling off. Prints of photos by Ron Pollard of WeKillEverything.com. Like his prison golf course uh, photo, which is an undoctored picture of a golf course that's right next to a prison. Like they share a fence with a prison. And the image that Ron got printed for us and is showing up at the gallery is printed on aluminum. We're going to be giving away three of his aluminum prints today. We're giving away a brand new This Is Hell t-shirt and tin This Is Hell coffee mug. We're also raffling off books featured this year on This Is Hell. So in the first six months of this year and even this month, the Roy Scranton book we just got in, and we'll be raffling that off. And the now classic 2014 Naomi Klein book, This Changes Everything on Climate Change. Every raffle winner will get the new This Is Hell tote bag and two zero euro notes 
with Karl Marx's image. So join us today, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and art show, also featuring live music. That's today, Saturday, July 21st, at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m., going till whenever. Find out more about what's happening and links to all the artists and musicians' work by going to our Facebook event page at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on This Is Hell, government surveillance is everywhere, and it's growing faster and faster, and unless we do something about it, We'll have a mass surveillance system that tracks our every move. Wait. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. We're, we're too late. That's already happening. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin returns to mourn the passing of a great life. All that plus a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. As well as, I promise you, we are going to get back to rotten history. And, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell. Government is watching all the time in ways that we would never imagine. And it's all totally legal. And it's not just the government. It's the private sector, too. And if we don't do anything about it, this is going to get a lot worse real fast. Here to talk about those who are listening to us right now, journalist Sarus Faravar is author of Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sarus. Thanks a lot. It's great to have you on our show, sir. You can follow Sarus on Twitter at C. F-A-R-I-V-A-R. That's C. Faravar. And we want to thank Don for suggesting Sarus as a guest. And Don, we'll be sending you advertising stickers in the mail for having your suggested guest being on the air. You can also get advertising stickers by attending our all-day party today happening over at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. So, um... You start with a quote in your book, Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. Tech, uh, You start with a quote from Chief Justice Earl Warren writing in the 1963 case Lopez versus the United States. Keep in mind, this is 1963, the fantastic advances in the field of electronic communication constitute a great danger to the privacy of the individual that indiscriminate use of such devices in law enforcement raises grave constitutional questions under the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, and that these considerations impose a heavier responsibility on this court in its supervision of the fairness of procedures in the federal court system. The Fourth and Fifth Amendments cover unlawful search and seizure, as well as guarantees of due process and the right to refuse to answer questions in order to avoid incriminating ourselves. To what extent do you think that great danger to the privacy of the individual that Justice Warren feared, to what degree do you think that has come true? That's a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, now we find ourselves more than 50 years later from that quote. Um, and we, I think, are in a new world that I think could not have really been conceived of, you know, during Chief Justice Warren's time. We now live in a world where, you know, as I speak, uh, in your city, uh, you know, uh, Chicago, Illinois, um, you know, there are all kinds of surveillance technologies that are in use uh, literally right now. Uh, so I write about a number of these in the book. They include things like license plate readers, devices that can capture at incredible speeds, um, up to 60 plates per second, um, license plates uh, that, of cars that are parked, of cars that are moving, traveling every which direction. 
Um, they're in use in Chicago. They're in use where I live in Oakland, California. They're in use in many cities, big and small, across our country. Uh, I know also in Chicago, as is the case, again, where I live in Oakland uh, and other cities as well, um, there are other technologies uh, that are in use, too, uh, to conduct you know, police surveillance. Um, there's a device known as a Stingray. These are uh, also known as a cell site simulator, devices that act as a fake cell tower that can give up, um, basically trick people's phones into giving up their location. And they're very useful for uh, police investigations to find out where suspects are or fugitives or, or anybody that they want to locate. Um, and that's just a couple of the technologies that I write about in the book. Um, and, you know, I think that now we, um, you know, live in a society in which there are all kinds of technologies that are basically pervasive, right? That, that I think most of us are not aware. I certainly was not aware until I started digging into this a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and we wouldn't, most of us, I think, you know, would recognize what a, you know, a surveillance camera in our corner liquor store looks like. But we probably wouldn't recognize a license plate reader camera, you know, if it was staring at us in the face. You mentioned that what are known as D orders, that is a court order for law enforcement to have access to your phone. You mentioned that a D order is a portion of the 1980s era stored communications act. And it is, quote, routine. Companies respond to them all the time, respond positively to them all the time. Mm -hmm. How easy is it? For us to not only be watched due to technology and listened to due to technology, but how lenient are courts? Uh, how lenient is the law in the United States today in allowing surveillance? Well, so specific to de-orders, that's an interesting question. So the law has actually very recently changed. Um, some listeners may be familiar with a Supreme Court case that was decided very recently, just a month or so ago, uh, a case called Carpenter versus United States. Um, Tim Carpenter, also known as Little Tim, uh, was part of a um, armed robbery gang that in 2010 and 2011 uh, was sticking up radio shacks and cell phone stores in Michigan and Ohio. Uh, they were going after the latest models of iPhones and uh, Galaxy, Samsung Galaxy smartphones. Um, and, you know, they did this so much that they drew the attention of federal authorities. And eventually, um, one of the um, co-conspirators in that case flipped and gave the government uh, the phone number of this guy, Tim Carpenter. And with that, they went to Metro PCS, uh, Little Tim's uh, provider, and as you say, they, they provided a what's called a de-order. This is the particular section, as you say, under the Stored Communications Act. And they asked Mr. PCS, they basically said, hey, please hand us over 127 days worth of Tim Carpenter's cell site location information. That basically means where his phone was, because his phone, like your phone and my phone, right, are co in constant communication with the nearest cell phone tower. This is how we have cell phone service. So if they knew where his phone was, there was a good chance that they knew where he was. And so the D order, as you say, um, you know, does not require uh, the showing of a warrant under the law uh, before this case uh, was decided at the Supreme Court, um, the the standard was simply relevancy to an ongoing investigation, which is a very low standard. That's certainly lower than probable cause of a crime. Um, and so Metro PCS uh, routinely, you know, as they would with many other cases, handed over this data. Um, Mr. Tim Carpenter challenged this case. He was represented at the Supreme Court by the ACLU. And ultimately, 
in um, I believe a five to four decision, the court found um, that you know these types of records, such uh, private, intimate location information, going over uh, such a large span, 127 days worth of data that showed, indeed, yes, he was at the location of the crimes, but also that he was at church on Sundays and that he was at his grandma's house on other days and that he was, you know, sleeping at uh, people's uh, residences who were not his known partner on other days. You know, the government was able to obtain a vast volume of data that had nothing to do with the crimes that he was accused of. And so the Supreme Court said um, that, yes, you do need a warrant. Uh, You certainly need a warrant for more than six days. You may need it for less than six days. So the the law here has changed very recently, thanks to the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, and we don't know yet exactly um, how that has changed, you know, the government's actions. But but you know, if you believe that the government is trying to follow what the Supreme Court says, then hopefully uh, they are no longer using this de order to obtain you know 127 days worth of somebody's data. And you write about yeah in the in those 127 days as you point out that included 12,898 data points showing where little Tim was at any given time over 127 days. How much are our own phones snitches? Do we knowingly allow a snitch to be with us at all times, seeing it as a fair <laughs> exchange for convenient communication? Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing, right, is that we, I think most of us, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but my phone is within arm's reach of me probably 98% of the time, you know. Um, It's next to my bed when I sleep. It's in my pocket when I'm out in the world. It's, you know, on my desk when I'm working at home. Um, You know, I carry it with me pretty much all the time. And so, yes, if the government knows where your phone is, then they know where you are, right? And you could argue that this is in some ways, um, you know, I think just as invasive as perhaps listening to your phone calls. In the 1960s, just a few years after that uh, Chief Justice Warren quote, quote that you read earlier, uh, the federal government, the co- Congress, passed uh, what is now known as the Wiretap Act, right? This is, anybody who's seen the, the TV show The Wire is, is at least familiar in passing with how this works, right? So in order to listen in on somebody's voice calls, if the government wanted to listen Uh, to tap the call that you and I are on right now, they would have to clear extraordinary hurdles. Not only would they have to show a probable cause, but they would have to show that, uh, you know, all other forms of surveillance have failed, would fail, or would be too dangerous to undertake. That's a very, very high bar. In fact, lawyers nickname this a super warrant, right? The government has to go beyond what a normal search warrant uh, would uh, require. And so, um, you know, but the government has figured out that using things like the orders, they can collect all kinds of other information without jumping through so many hoops. So yes, I would say that in many cases, our phones can, you know, turn into snitches. They do give the government kind of superpowers. The ACLU likened this to a, to a time machine uh, in its argument before the Supreme Court, saying that this gives the government power that it did not have, you know, uh, until very, very recently. Um, and the government is relying on, uh, in the case of the D order, as you say, a law from the 1980s, long before Um, you know, the vast majority of us, the overwhelming majority of us, had cell phones in our pocket. And it goes back further in time because you describe how in little uh, Tim's case, the person who had, when they went back on his phone 127 days and they found 12,898 data points about showing where he was and when he was there, 
You write um, that Justice Anthony Kennedy interrupted Little Tim's attorney only four sentences into his opening argument. Kennedy asked, what is the rule that you want us to adopt in this case, assuming that we keep U.S. versus Miller and Smith versus Maryland on the books? And you explain Kennedy was referring to two bedrock cases dating back to the 1970s, which enshrined the third-party doctrine. The idea of the third-party doctrine is that individuals relinquish their reasonable expectation of privacy when they transact via a third party, like a phone company. In other words, the data given up by little Tim Carpenter, not only what numbers he called, but where he was while doing so, can easily be obtained by the government. To what degree do we lose, and to what degree do we know that we lose privacy rights when we use telecommunications technology of any and all kinds? Do we knowingly give up our Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights every time we use our phones or are just carrying our phones? I think most of us don't realize that. I certainly had never heard this legal phrase until I you know, started diving down this uh, never-ending privacy rabbit hole a couple of years ago. Um, you know, so the third-party doctrine, as you say, uh, uh, allows the government to obtain data. It's this theory that goes back to these cases that Justice Kennedy referred to, uh, um, United States versus Miller and Smith versus Maryland. So Smith versus Maryland is one of the cases that I dive into in the book. Uh, and that case actually has to do with a woman who got mugged on her doorstep at midnight in Baltimore late one night in the 1970s. Uh, eventually, the person who mugged her um, decided that not only he wasn't satisfied simply with mugging her, he decided he was going to make harassing phone calls as well. So at, because he, he continued to do that, uh, the police eventually were able to obtain using something called a pen register, essentially a call log showing uh, that, uh, that he called this woman uh, you know, at certain times from certain phones and was able to, the government was able to obtain, again, without a warrant, uh, establishing that connection between them. And so this is one of the key cases that established this third-party doctrine, the idea that simply because he used a third party, a phone company, the local phone company in this case, uh, that he, he gave up all privacy interests uh, in the fact in his call records. And it's interesting because that legal idea, this, this phrase, this third-party doctrine, later on, not, not only is the, the basis for uh, the government's argument in more modern cases like Carpenter, but it's also been the legal underpinning for um, kind of much more widespread uh, uh, types of surveillance, such as the NSA metadata program that I think most of us uh, only became aware of thanks to Edward Snowden uh, in 2013. Uh, the metadata program, of course, uh, was the program that the NSA had set up between 20, 2001 and 2015 that gathered all of our telephone metadata, right? You called me, I called my brother, and so on and so on. All Americans for 14 years on end without without interruption. Um, and you can imagine, just as the police were extremely interested in knowing uh, where Tim Carpenter had been over those 127 days, uh, the government also was extremely interested in who was calling who uh, for years on end in the name of, of fighting terrorism. Um, and the, I, the judge, a FISA court judge, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court judge, ruled based on this Baltimore case, the mugging, uh, that if it holds that one person does not have a privacy interest in three days' worth of call records, then it follows that nobody does ever. And to me, those things are vastly out of whack with one another, but that is the law as it currently stands. And so in Carpenter, the Supreme Court took great pains to say, we are not overturning the third-party doctrine. We are saying that in this case, where we're talking about cell site location information, 
Um, this is different, right? So we're not talking about call logs. We're not talking about other kinds of data. We're not talking about bank records. We're not talking about anything else. In this case, everybody has a phone. This is different. The government, if it wants to get all of this uh, data over such a long period of time, it does need a warrant. Um, but the third-party doctrine is still good law. Uh, so, you know, that's the situation in which we find ourselves. You know, I couldn't help but think while I was reading your book that there are people who are um, gun control supporters who argue that the Second Amendment is simply out of date because at the time it was a musket and it was it took a while to load a musket and the range wasn't all that great. And so the kinds of weapons that were being used at the time when you want to have a right to bear arms, they were very limited. And now here we are, and now today, you know, we have much greater gun technology. People have uh, machine guns. And now here we are talking about freedom of speech and how mm-hmm. the technologies that we have today are certainly not the technologies that they had when they were drawing up the founding documents of the United States of America. So to what degree does uh, phone technology reveal that uh, the United States Constitution and all of our founding documents when it relates to speech and our laws are obsolete. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because we believe strongly, I think all of us do, in the ideas of the Constitution. And I, I would like to think that our founders um, hoped and believed that the these ideals would endure uh, over time, right? There's the famous um, Benjamin Franklin quote uh, that he's reported to have said, um, you know, just after the first, uh, you know, American government had been formed, where somebody asked him what kind of government it was, and it was, and he's quoted to have said, you know, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Um, So, uh, you know, I think the the founders intended that these ideals would would, uh, continue forward, and I think probably most of them could not imagine, as you say, modern-day machine guns, nor could they have imagined uh, modern-day cell phones uh, or smartphones or the Internet itself, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, the basic ideas are good. Uh, I think we all want there to, we all want there to be a check on, on government power. We don't want the government to have uh, unfettered access to our homes or to our devices or to our data. Um, but the the government has tried to kind of skirt around that, right? I think most of us who are not lawyers don't fully understand um, you know, the difference between what the law considers to be a search versus a non-search or a reasonable search versus a non versus an unreasonable search. Remember, the Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. It does not protect us against all searches and seizures, uh, merely ones that are unreasonable. Uh, and it imposes a warrant requirement to as a way to kind of draw that line. Um, but there are lots of things, whether it's cell phone data license plate reader data, uh, visual data captured by drones or body cameras or all kinds of other things um, that, you know, go up to that line and don't quite cross over the search uh, uh, boundary. And it takes a while sometimes for courts to to start to say, as they did in the Carpenter case, hey, guess what? This is a little bit different than, than what we mean. And yes, capturing somebody's data for 127 days is unconstitutional, and you do need a warrant to do it. Uh, so it does take time. And one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that the pace at which, you know, technology advances um, is really is increasingly getting out of whack with with I wouldn't say the Constitution specifically, but in some of the laws, you know, you talked about the the Short Communications Act from the 1980s. 
uh, you know, I think it's getting out of whack with, with those. It's important to remember that the events in the Carpenter case um, took place eight years ago, right, in 2010 and 2011. Um, I don't know about you, but my smartphone, my iPhone in my pocket, the iPhone that I'm talking to you on right now, uh, has gotten a lot better <laughs> in those last eight years. Um, so if you can imagine how much better uh, the government's ability to capture data, uh, to have other kinds of surveillance tools uh, in its arsenal has gotten better in those same time. And yet only very recently has the Supreme Court taken up this issue. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us, whether we live in you know Chicago or Miami or Seattle or you know Des Moines, Iowa, to um, to examine more closely uh, the types of technology that is in use in our own backyards. Is this debate then between privacy and safety? Is this an ongoing debate debate throughout the history of the United States? Is this just a matter of finding the perfect balance of security and surveillance? And is that equilibrium even possible to find? Because it would seem like that balance would simply shift from time to time based on the current events, the public mood, the newest technologies. So is this an ongoing debate throughout American history, and can we expect this to be an ongoing debate going into the future as those goalposts, those signposts, will constantly shift between privacy and security? Sure, and I think that that's something that surprised me, you know, when I undertook this uh, book, which is that, um, you know, that this debate, you know, talking specifically about, you know, electronic communications to say nothing of of the interception of other types of communications or other types of, of surveillance, uh, you know, previously. Uh, I think if you take a kind of a holistic look at the Bill of Rights, particularly the first five, uh, you know, they act as a real check on the government's power, right? The Congress shall make no law infringing the freedom of speech, uh, you know, for the purposes of a well-regulated militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, a lot of people forget about the Third Amendment, which protects um, us against having soldiers quartered in our homes, um, which I think a lot of people would interpret as a pro-privacy measure, right? You don't want uh, agents of the government in your own physical space uh, because it's invasive. And, you know, I think it would be, I think a lot of us would be troubled if, uh, you know, if the government could just randomly send soldiers into your into your property. Um, the Fourth Amendment, as we talked about, protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and the Fifth, uh, protecting us against self-incrimination. These are meant to protect us, the citizenry, against the uh, against the government, and that's what our founders were certainly worried about. Um, you know, and so yes, I think that this is a debate that has gone on for quite a long time. I think that um, now, as we live in a world where perfect surveillance is technologically possible, right? Uh, you don't have to look very far. Uh, you know, just look at China. I think there's been uh, stories in the news recently about uh, the government using facial recognition technology to, um, you know, keep tabs on its own citizenry. Uh, the Chinese internet, of course, is much more surveilled and censored than our own. Uh, you know, I think China is often pointed to as the kind of surveillance dystopia of the 21st century. Um, and in this country, we, you know, it's a bit more uneven, uh, and but I think it would be not difficult to imagine a near future politician uh, to say, "Hey, you know, in the name of fighting terrorism or in the name of fighting crime in Chicago, we should have uh, you know facial recognition capable body cameras and all police officers. We should have uh, you know specialized aerial surveillance flights capturing where people are moving around the city. Uh, we should have uh, you know shot spotters." Uh, devices that can record gunshots, you know, on every street corner, 
we should have all kinds of these tools that, um, you know, as groups like the ACLU might argue, give the government superpowers. Because before, one of the biggest checks uh, against government surveillance was, you know, time and money, right? If the government wanted to surveil your house uh, or track you as you moved around the city of Chicago, they would have to, you know, pay officers to drive cars or ride bikes or ride horses or whatever, uh, you know, to follow you. And that requires, um, you know, manpower and time and money. Um, and so they, and those resources are finite, right? But now, if you can just sit back on a computer and just literally click a button as a file comes over, uh, you know, from Metro PCS, giving you 127 days of data, uh, that's a totally different ballgame. You write that when I first began as a professional reporter in 2004, I was largely dazzled by the excitement of new technology. Gmail was new. Facebook was just beginning. Ubiquitous Wi-Fi was just starting. Podcasts entered the lexicon. Rarely did I consider what impact all of this whiz-bang technology would have on society, and in particular on law enforcement. Now, granted, it's 14 years later, and you may be looking at things differently, but why seemingly don't we consider technology's impact on society, including when it comes to law enforcement and the government? What keeps us from reconsidering or considering our relationship with technology? Well, I think part of it is that, number one, it's, it's useful, right? Our smartphones are useful. Um, you know, we like Facebook. We like cat videos on the Internet. <laughs> we like sending silly memes to one another. Uh, we like, uh, you know, emojis and, and all of those all of those kind of fun and utilitarian benefits that that kind of technology brings. Um, so that's, that's, I would say, one major element. Another is that um, a lot of us, I think, are just largely unaware of the types of surveillance technology that our um, local state and federal law enforcement uh, have been acquiring and continue to acquire. Uh, again, I think, um, you know, law enforcement, generally speaking, has not been very forthright uh, in terms of um, being transparent always about the capabilities that it has. Um, you know, I know in Chicago, for example, uh, very recently, unfortunately, there was another uh, police shooting I heard on the news recently. And the Chicago police, if I'm not mistaken, um, unlike was the case a couple of years ago in Laquan McDonald, um, took the step to release the body camera video relatively quickly rather than wait to being sued and having to go through a whole legal process. Um, so I think that's a positive step um, in terms of uh, police transparency and using technology uh, for good. But again, uh, you know, we don't know fully what other types of surveillance uh, are in use. I know in Chicago, uh, there was a local activist named Freddie Martinez who sued the Chicago Police Department to learn more about um, this stingray technology that I mentioned earlier, um, and that you know took quite a while for him to get some records back from from the city of Chicago. So I think generally there's been a culture of law enforcement and the federal government as well saying you know hey trust us we're doing this you know in the name of public safety and public good, um, but a lot of us are just very very unaware. Our local lawmakers are unaware. Oftentimes um, these types of technologies are acquired uh, through the use of federal grant money. Sometimes there's NDAs that are attached, Stingrays in particular. Uh, the major company, the major vendor of Stingrays is a company called the Harris Corporation. It's a defense contractor out of Florida. Uh, and they, I think, always uh, make cities sign NDAs so that they can't even talk to 
talk about them publicly. They can't talk to journalists. They can't talk to city council members. They can't talk to anybody uh, outside of law enforcement about, you know, this technology and how it works. Um, so us as the interested citizenry have to sort of struggle with public records requests and lawsuits and trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and that makes it very, very difficult. And you write how federal government has given anti-terror surveillance technology to police departments in this way that it seems like the government is implying that we are all potential terrorists. And you also write about how in Oakland, California, these license plate readers and just exactly how many license plates that they actually read. You point out that over a 16-month period, it had read 793,273 plates and had 2012 hits, a hit rate of 0.2%. In other words, it seems like what they're doing is they are making all cars, all drivers of cars, potential criminal suspects. What do you think happens to the relationship between city and federal or citizen and federal government or citizen and police when the federal government when the government views all citizens as potential terrorists and the police are collecting information on all citizens viewing them as all, all of them as criminal suspects how does that affect the relationship between government and police and citizen yeah well i think you know it's it's very interesting um I think it makes, uh, you know, I think we in this country, as our, as we talked about a moment ago, right, our Bill of Rights is sort of baked into this idea of the citizenry is skeptical of government power. And this is not, you know, our, most of us, I think, have a, a skepticism of the government. We're, we are generally, as Americans, we are generally speaking skeptical of government power, and we're more accepting of private power, right? We're more accepting of actions of companies, Facebook, Google, uh, and others. Um, and we're generally less accepting of government power. In Europe, for example, I lived in Germany for two years. In Europe, for example, it's generally the opposite, right? There's more uh, willingness to go along with what government does, and there's a little bit more skepticism towards private companies. Um, so I think here, uh, you know, now that I think there's been an increasing awareness of some of the dangers uh, and some of the uh, consequences of this type of surveillance technology, we do have, uh, you know, judges, lawyers, activists, journalists, lawmakers um, who are starting to step up and say, hang on a second, we maybe let's think about this in a different kind of way. Um, here in California, there's a bill pending before the state legislature, uh, Senate Bill 1186, uh, which is supported by the ACLU and other groups, um, which would impose for the first time uh, meaningful community oversight that would require um, and already local versions of this have been passed here where I live in Oakland and also Davis, California and Santa Clara County, which is the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, and these bills essentially would require that law enforcement or any other city agency that acquires a, uh, a type of surveillance technology be much more forthright uh, in describing what it is that they want, why they want it, coming up with meaningful policies that have, uh, you know, actually useful checks on abuses, um, and to be just much more transparent about um, what kinds of tools uh, that they need. You know, uh, you're in Chicago, I'm here in Oakland, both of our cities, um, you know, have very serious violent crime. I think all of us want the government to go after legitimate terrorists, and we want the government to go after legitimate uh, criminals to deal with very serious violent crime. Um, Chicago, of course, you know, has lots of of shootings and murders. Oakland, where I live, um, tragically, for the last several years, on average, has had something like 80 people being murdered per year. Uh, obviously, we 
we don't want that to happen in our cities. Um, but at the same time, uh, we want the government to go after you know, serious criminals. We want them to, to prosecute them and bring them to justice. But at the same time, we don't want our civil rights and civil liberties to be impinged along the way. And so, um, you know, I think it's a difficult uh, balance, as you say, to try to come up with, um, with that. Uh, and that's something that our republic has struggled with for a long time. One last question for you, Sarus. We have been speaking with journalist Sarus Faravar. He is author of Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. You should check out all of his writing over at Ars Technica, where he is a senior business editor. We want to thank Don for suggesting Sarus as a guest. And Don, we'll be sending you subvertising stickers in the mail for having suggested our guest this morning on the show. One last question for you, Sarus, and mm-hmm. it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. How much is the government controlling major tech companies, and how much are major tech companies controlling the government? Because the government works with companies like Google. So how would you describe those kinds of public-private relationship? Who's controlling who? Who's determining our future and who is defining our progress more? Is it the government or is it the corporations? Well, uh, that's a hard question. Um, You know, we unfortunately, we don't always know uh, what the exact nature of those relationships are. Um, you know, we do know, for example, I think the New York Times reported just this past week uh, that the biggest buyer of advertising on Facebook is the Donald Trump 2020 reelection campaign. Um, so, you know, there's a, certainly a, a link between, uh, you know, tech, major tech companies and uh, government. Um, there's, of course, many c- companies that um, most of us maybe are less familiar with. There's a company out here in California called Palantir. Um, which is a kind of law enforcement and defense contractor that has major uh, connections to uh, to the government. One of its uh, spinoffs, uh, I think it's called Anduril, uh, is working with um, the Customs and Border Protection and ICE uh, to build kind of analytics tools for um, to mitigate uh, you know people who are crossing the border uh, without documentation. Um, you know, so there's a, certainly a large connection between uh, those companies. We don't know exactly how much, uh, you know, if, if Google or Facebook or any of these other companies are revealing uh, their, you know, secrets or providing some extra service to, to the government. Um, there are lots of other, you know, much smaller companies that I think, again, most of us would not be as familiar with. I mentioned Harris that makes the Stingray. There's a company out here um, in California that's called Vigilant Solutions uh, that claims to have the world's largest a private license plate reader database. They claim that it's uh, over 10 billion license plate reader scans. Um, there's another company out of Ohio uh, that's called Persistent Surveillance uh, Systems. Um, they operate um, flights. Uh, they operate a specialized, I think it's a Cessna, with particular cameras on them to monitor uh, cities um, from 10,000 feet up. Uh, it's sort of a TiVo in the sky capturing uh, you know, all the movements of people on the ground. Um, they've done these tests in California and Ohio and Miami, Baltimore, uh, other places. Um, and so there is a connection between, you know, many of these tech companies. And we often don't know uh, until sometimes it's too late, uh, till you know, through public records or whistleblowers or, or other things like that. Uh, and so that's why I think some of these laws that I mentioned earlier um, that are much more try to be a little bit more proactive and try to um, help us understand what's going on uh, before we get into a position where we have uh, 
you know, a um, decade-long, you know, NSA metadata program that most of us didn't know about until, you know, well after it had already begun. Um, so I hope uh, that some of the legislative efforts here uh, in California uh, continue to take hold throughout the country. I know in Illinois, you, you guys have uh, a biometric law that's really important. There's a, there's a federal lawsuit involving Facebook um, that relies on that law that's going on in federal court right now here in California. Um, so, you know, I think hopefully with uh, some of our combined legislative efforts, um, we can uh, get a better handle as to what's going on. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. That's journalist Sarus Faravar, author of Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. Thanks so much for being on our show this week, and we really appreciate it, Sarus, and I'll be bugging you in the future to have you back on. My pleasure. Thank you. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell. We'll wrap up this week's This is Hell with a moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin returns to mourn the passing of a great life. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1919, 99 years ago, thousands of people in Chicago watched in horror as a brand new hydrogen-filled dirigible called the Wingfoot Air Express burst into flames while carrying three crew and two passengers over the city's downtown loop. The airship, owned and operated by the Goodyear Company, had made its short maiden flight earlier that day, launching from its base on the south side and landing in Grant Park. It seems practical. I have to be at work at 9 in the loop, so I'll take the 812 dirigible to Grant Park, then unicycle it over to the office. A few hours later, the Wingfoot Air Express took off again for the return trip as it was passing 1,200 feet above the city. Witnesses on the ground saw it catch fire in the sky because this was back when people still looked up into the sky instead of looking at their smartphones, said an old man just missing you with a surprisingly well-thrown slide rule. Two pilots parachuted out of the dirigible and landed safely. Because, oddly, on dirigibles, captains do not go down with their ships. They just get the hell out of there as fast as possible. True fact. A third crew member was caught in the flames and fell to his death. One passenger, a photographer for the Chicago Daily News, made it to the ground alive on his parachute. Wait, one guy brought his own parachute? I wonder if they would allow you to bring a parachute onto a commercial flight today. And how freaked out would you be if the person next to you put a parachute in the overhead. I mean, if they don't order lunch, I would become very, very concerned. But the guy who brought his own parachute was heavily injured and later died in a hospital from the jump. The other passenger also tried to jump, but his parachute... Okay, so more than one of the passengers had parachutes. His parachute snarled on the airship's external rigging. He dangled on the cords like a marionette, which is an awful image, kicking and screaming as the whole flaming wreck came crashing down onto a bank at the corner of Jackson and LaSalle Streets, where 150 unsuspecting employees were working. As the engines and gondola smashed through the ceiling and hit the floor of the bank's central hall, the gasoline tanks exploded, setting off a blaze in which 10 bank workers were killed. Dozens more were sent screaming into the streets while their clothes and skin caught on fire, and a major portion of the bank's documents and records were destroyed. Okay, I I thought I knew everything or a lot at least about Chicago history, and I have never heard of this blimp bank crash. A PR flack from Goodyear later admitted to the Chicago Tribune reporter that no passengers should have been aboard the flight since the new airship was still in testing and had not yet been certified as safe, which explains the prevalence of parachutes on the flight. 
In Rotten History, 1948, 70 years ago, Italian riot police armed with clubs, pistols, and machine guns fanned out across the country to suppress the general strike and widespread protests that were paralyzing the nation as Palmiro Togliatti, general secretary of the Italian Communist Party, lay near death in a Rome hospital. Just a few days earlier, Togliatti had ducked out of a long-winded session of the Chamber of Deputies to grab a gelato at the nearby Gelati ice cream parlor, one of the oldest and most renowned in Rome. That's Togliatti eating gelato at Joliti, which is the most wonderful phrase I've ever said during Rotten History. Let me languish in it for a minute. Togliatti eating gelato at Gelati. As Togliatti reemerged from the shop with his frosty treat, he was shot three times by a 25-year-old right-wing fanatic named Antonio Palanti. Palanti shot Togliatti while Togliatti was eating gelato from Gelati. Palanti shot Togliatti while Togliatti was eating gelato from Joliti. It's a tough one. That street demonstrations in response to the shooting would die down only after news broke that Togliatti's condition was improving and also that a popular Italian cyclist had just won the Tour de France. Togliatti, who in 1926 had succeeded Antonio Gramsci as party leader, eventually resumed his post and his advocacy of a so-called Italian road to democratic socialism. When he finally died in 1964, his funeral in Rome was attended by an estimated one million people. To sum up, Gino Batali won the 1948 Tour de France, his second tour victory in 10 years and one world war since his first. Also, some gelato-eating commie got shot but didn't die. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge today, today, Saturday, July 21st, today, beginning at 3 p.m. and going on into the night at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. There will be a food, a raffle, live music, an art opening, music by the Pure Cane duo of Ted Sirota and Dan Chase, followed by Vivian Garcia Abraham Mellish with Chris Paquette doing percussion and wrapping up that night will be the music of Craid. Upstairs, we'll, we'll have the second annual This Is Hell art show, This Is Art, at Second Story Studios featuring artists uh, Luke Bracken, Ian Lance, Julie Murphy, Laddie Scott Odom, Ron Pollard, and Vicky Zulugi. Raffle prizes include photos by Ron Pollard of WeKillEverything.com printed on aluminum. New This Is Hell swag, zero euro notes featuring Karl Marx. Uh, this Changes Everything, the book by Naomi Klein. A ton of other stuff, other books that have been featured on the show this year. And uh, all sorts of other stuff you'll find out when you get to, the sh- get to the party. We'll also be revealing the new This Is Hell broadcast studio, despite the fact that uh, it's still a few weeks from being completely and fully functioning. That's the This Is Hell third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge today, Saturday, July 21st, beginning at 3 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. All right, Alex, bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I know you have FA on the line, I'm sure. One, two, you know what to do. Goodbye, John Schnapp.
Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I'm in a mood. I know we're all in various moods these days, what with a cartoon pig dictator come to life to clown his antics all over the world in the name of the country in which we live, and dictatorial cartoon pigs wallowing rampant in every other nation where cartoon pig food is abundant. There are any number of subjects I could wax aggrieved about, chief among them the recent vote in the Knesset to officially declare the non-Jews of Israel second-class citizens so that the accusation of Israel being an apartheid state can no longer be considered an exaggeration. But what at this peculiar historical moment can be considered an exaggeration? We're living in a caricatured era of our civilization's decline. Meanwhile, in a mood-altering event which occurred over the past two weeks, a friend of mine back in the day in Chicago came down with what appeared to be flu symptoms. He became delirious, was taken to the hospital where his liver was found to be shutting down. Later in the hospital, he suffered a stroke, causing hemorrhaging on one side of his brain. His platelet count was too low for the doctors to relieve the pressure by cutting him open, and blood thinners failed to do the trick, with the result that the bleeding of one half of the brain crushed the other half. I'm piecing all this together from conversations with friends closer to the experience, so don't take this as accurate, but it seems to jibe with other reports. I was among friends who saw John Schnepp in the hospital last Tuesday. Unable to breathe on his own, he lay there in a state of neural non-function, breathing with the aid of medical machinery. Thanks to his friends and family, I was able to see him that one last time, and it was hard to take, but I'm glad I went except for the tube and the machines and the unconsciousness, he did not look unwell. I left him a small figurine of the Cyclops, a model of the one Ray Harryhausen animated for the movie The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I almost expected John to open his eyes and say something, but that, devastatingly, was never going to happen. The word I got was that he was released from this state of non-animation into eternity sometime on Thursday, family members and his fiance and partner in everything, Holly Payne, by his side. John Schnepp was an exceptionally tall, vivid person with an outgoing personality to match his size and mad scientist Jufro. There was no one more alive than John Schnepp. This, like the state of the world, is not hyperbole. If anything, it's an understatement. The tragedy of his passing at the age of 51 stunned people throughout comics nerddom with fans who knew him only from his appearances on his media review shows and through other fan venues mourning his passing with sincere tears and decrying the unfairness of fate. Comic-Con, which is right now in full swing down in San Diego, will surely be memorializing him. In better times, he'd be there with throngs eager to talk to him. I knew John from back before Chicago's Wicker Park was gentrified into its current condition as a trendy hellmouth. He was an early adopter and master of the avid editing system. He was a performer, writer, artist, and filmmaker. He knew what he wanted out of life, unlike some of us, and spent every waking hour creating and attracting the world he wanted to live in. He made his dreams come true because to him, they were simply what he was born to do and be. He made comics wrote, directed, and acted in films and TV, directed and wrote the adult swim cartoon Metalocalypse, which charted the adventures of the Scandinavian band Death Clock, who became in real life, whatever that is, one of the most popular death metal bands in the world. He also edited many episodes of Space Ghost Coast to Coast, a surreal cartoon. He directed a segment of the movie The ABCs of Death and a documentary The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? 
about Tim Burton's aborted Superman movie. Schnepp's aesthetic was ahead of its time, with addiction, camera style, and editing language all its own. The off-dialogue cutting style of Ren and Stimpy morphed into Schnepp's absurdist white-noise-throbbing pauses in Space Ghost. His storytelling dynamic camera in some of his earlier films made after his move to L.A., like The Removers, often imposed a fourth-wall-breaking emotional response in the viewer that prefigured the comic camera work on the single-camera groundbreaker Malcolm in the Middle. By the time Adult Swim had achieved its peak of popularity, you could say, as I did, that the world had finally caught up with John Schnepp. Or you could say the world and John Schnepp had co-evolved to accommodate each other. I believe John was an influential artist whose influence grew as nerddom flourished, comics came into their own, and superheroes took center stage in movies. I could list his accomplishments, I could list his passions, talk about the many people he and I had in common, and the old days of the performance-slash-venue-slash-living-space Milk of Burgundy in Wicker Park. But those would just be specific examples of the Schnepp continuum. He and I stayed in touch after he moved to L.A., and one of the first things I did when I got out here was contact him. He had already worked on Space Ghost by then. He and I did one of the most Hollywood things I've ever done out here. We visited the home of Forrest Ackerman, creator of the pulp magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland. On one of the days, Forrest opened his doors so anyone could visit and view his collection of movie memorabilia. John treated Forrest like he'd known him for years, as in many ways we both had. John was super enthusiastic about it, about everything, everything and everyone he loved. What he loved, he loved a lot and knew everything about deeply. Later, he would befriend a legion of artists and personalities as his orbit grew. He got to hug Amanda Palmer. I had a blast being part of Mad Science back in the day, a sci-fi pilot show starring John and his then-creative partner, Mez Murray. They put a huge portion of that generation of Chicago talent and technical expertise to work. Anyone in that scene who encountered him was touched by his brilliance and joie de vivre. John got a ton out of his time on the planet and gave a ton back. He made a lot more people a lot happier than some who make millions as entertainers and live into their 90s. What I'm trying to get across is that John was not just taking up space down here on Earth. If anything, he deserved more space, more resources, and more attention. And whenever throughout the years John has shown up on my radar or our paths have crossed, or he's crossed my mind even, the awareness of his existence has always been accompanied by happiness and inspiration. I still have a three-inch tall steel figurine of Gort from the day the earth stood still, which John suggested I buy. He had one. It was just so heavy and cool. I'm tempted to say Klatu Barada Nikto sweaties, but not even Gort can change this situation. An extraordinary phenomenon is that John's ability to build a brilliant life made me realize how many of my friends have also built them, and it even made me realize how I myself have at times turned pure existence into something more. John's life was like a fire that illuminated those gathered around it, and even those just passing by or, or dancing by, dancing in and out of the light. That's what fans and friends are mourning, because he extended so far beyond the limits of himself. He was so much more than just a man in a startlingly present body, or even a mere consciousness propelling that body and making it do its thing. He was like a gravitational wave that ripples across the universe, and yet so not full of himself. It could make you question whether or not you had the potential to ripple as well, and many around him have and still do. He just made everyone happier to be alive. 
If there's a person who's an exception to this, I don't want to know them. I hope that person finds a way to spark something better in themselves because now, to the world's misfortune, John's flame is out. He was the exact opposite of what's been going on lately in the news. He cared about people and animals and the spirit, and I hate like hell to see him go. He made everything better. Thanks to Dan Bigelow and Mez Murray for keeping me in the loop, to Ivan DeWolf for the companionship on visiting day, and Holly for making sure as many as possible got to say goodbye. This has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. Well, my condolences to you, my friend, and uh, will you write my obituary? Just take John Schnapp's name out of that one and just put him on. Oh, you know yours is going to be great. You can die with, with your mind resting easy, Chuck. Because you know it's going to be hot. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. <laughs> Until right, next. Well, What's that? Have fun tonight. Have fun tonight and say hi to everybody. Yeah, it's a real drag that you're not here. I had a lot of people asking me, is Jeff actually going to show up? Was he just jerking your chain? Was he teasing I, you? Is really he going to surprise? I really wanted to. I mooched and begged, and I'm just, I'm, I'm really going to be lucky to make my rent in September. I'll tell you that. All right. Well, we'll make sure that you're here for next year's party. I'm, I'll make sure. All right. All right. Until next time. Okay. Stay beautiful. All right. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple of ways you can support This Is Hell at thisishell.com when you click on support. One is by becoming a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash thisishell. The other one is just by looking at stuff that we can do for you and you can do for us by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks this week goes out to the religious-like tithing support of Adrienne. And we got support from someone who contacts us via Twitter with a very special name. Hey there, my dudes. EatFart69 here. Congrats on the upcoming third annual 20th anniversary party. Keep up the great work. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed. More than ever, the best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly share the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more share it, but many choose not to do so, uh, and you know, not to do so publicly. And that's probably a good idea considering Facebook's sharing of data that's Probably a really good idea, actually. Thanks this week goes out to Julie, Dan, Jeffrey, Nick, all the people who shared our interview with the Internationalist Commune in Rojava, including Fergus, and not to be confused with Fergus, a different person named Fergus, not Fergus, two different people. And in Archimedia, Mike and Gidden. Thanks for sharing our happy interview with Roy Scranton about letting civilization die. We'll be raffling off that book this afternoon. Thanks to the people who shared that interview with Roy Scranton, including Black Rose Book Distro, Kale, Dennis, and Tree. Thanks to everyone who shared our interview with Anna Clark on what poisoned Flint's water. Thanks to Cynthia, Gin, Van, and Metropolitan Books. Thanks to everyone who shared our intense conversation with Maximilian Alvarez on our relationship with all forms of media and technology, including 
Hegel, Oliver, Gorilla Gramophonics, and Pete. And finally, thanks for sharing to Seamus and Jesse. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell. However you share the show, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever, if you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party today, this afternoon, starting in just a couple of hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon at 3 p.m., beginning at 3 p.m., 2251 West Devon, Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Music will be performed by Ted Sirota and Dan Chase, followed by Vivian Garcia and then Abraham Mellish with percussion by Chris Paquette. And wrapping up the night will be a couple of sets by the band Craid. They'll be covering, I believe, video game music. Upstairs, we'll have the second annual This Is Art Art Show at Second Story Studios. And the artist that will be featured include Luke Brecken, Ian Lance, Julie Murphy, Laddie Scott Odom, Ron Pollard, and Vicky Zlugi. Raffle prizes include photos by Ron Pollard of WeKillEverything.com that are actually printed on aluminum. They're really cool. New This Is Hell swag, zero euro notes featuring Karl Marx, books recently featured on the radio show and podcast, and copies of This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Uh, We're going to be giving out uh, not only a T-shirt, but a tin cup. Uh, everybody Everybody who wins any prize gets a This Is Hell tote bag. And uh, we'll also be revealing our new This Is Hell broadcast studios, which aren't completely functioning yet, but you'll still see them in the current state they're in. We're getting real close. That's This Is Hell's third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge today, Saturday, July 21st, beginning at 3 p.m., going on into the night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. If you want to find all the details about all the artists and musicians who will be showing their work and performing their work, uh, all you have to do is just go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this. Is Hell Radio and check out the event page there. Okay, Alex, who is on next week's show? Uh, continuing the fact that uh, we're just going with listener suggested, we have two more people spilling over to next week. Actually, one over the week after, too. C. Riley Snorton will be on to talk about his book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity, who I think we actually had two people suggesting that, yes. so I'll remember that next week. Madeline and... Jack? Yeah. There was two Jacks. And then also a Victor Wallace will be on to talk about his book, Red Green Revolution: The Politics and Technology of Eco Socialism. Is that another Tom Tom suggestion? I don't know. Well, uh, I hope not. Maybe Tom's one to blame for all these people are being men. <laughs> uh, also, <laughs> finally, uh, may, maybe, maybe, but don't get your hopes up. Boots Riley, maybe, maybe, possibly, could be, hopefully. And, of course, a moment of truth with Jeff Dorch. And I want to thank Alex for producing this morning's show, as well as thanking Leo. I want to thank Ronaldo for working on the um, Rotten History today. Thanks to all of the artists, all of the musicians who will be performing and showing off their work this afternoon at Carrie's Lounge. Special thanks to Pete Balavanis for giving us a space where we can have a party at Carrie's Lounge. Special thanks to my girly who has done so much incredible work over the last few weeks on our studio on the space and now today on the art show i cannot thank her enough also thanks to our guests this week journalist sarus faravar author of habeas data privacy versus the rise of surveillance tech and thanks to don for making that suggestion thanks to historian walter scheidel who is author of the great leveler violence and the history of inequality from the stone age to the 21st century thanks to tom 
for giving us that suggestion. Uh, thanks to Howard Bryant for being on the show. He is author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Listener Jack suggested Howard, so Jack will be soon be receiving This Is Hell Subvertising stickers in the mail uh, for giving us a suggestion that we actually booked on the show. And you can get subvertising stickers as well at our party that is happening today. And again, thanks to listener Tom, who donated the 20 zero euro Karl Marx notes that we will be giving away this afternoon. Actually, we're giving away 18 of them. We already lost two of them in a horrible fire. No, it wasn't a fire. It was for paying off people with zero euros. That actually works somehow. But we want to thank uh, Tom for suggesting uh, award-winning ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of York, Christy Thomas, author of Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. Okay, I'm looking forward to seeing all of of you at this afternoon's, this evening's, and tonight's party over at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the third annual 20th anniversary party for This Is Hell. I know the math is confusing. I know the title is confusing, but just deal with it. It's our 22nd year. See, 20 would be the first one, 21 would be the second, 22 would be the third. Makes a lot of sense. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. My demon, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.